Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste slowly ease their way around a corner, head gently toward each other, and collide. Thank you, Whitney. You're Always quite welcome. a fun narrative. <laughs> My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic for IGN and uh, other places that might have me in the future at some point. And with me, as always, is my scintillating, intelligent, my rock, Mr. William Bibiani. Hi, my name is William Bibiani. I'm a film critic for Bloody Disgusting, and everybody calls me Bibbs, and the cat is on the counter already, and I'll be right back. <laughs> uh, we have a cute little drinking game here at Critically Acclaimed. Luca, every every on. time a cat interrupts the podcast, uh, just finish your drink. <laughs> Whatever you're drinking. You're going to be so yeah. wasted. The, oh, the 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 cats are getting more precocious as time passes. Uh, I think they're just getting more persnickety. <laughs> they're getting more per something. But welcome back to Critically Acclaimed. Uh, this is uh, sort of lockdown time. All of the theaters are closed, but we're still here to review all of the new releases because film studios aren't going to be deterred by this too much. Well, I mean, at a least lot of not, the major releases at, at are backing down. The, the, str- the streaming services, yeah, some yeah. of the major releases are are being pushed back. Uh, mm-hmm. Sony announced today that they're pushing back. There are a whole slate of films back an entire year. Um, yep. Like if you're if you're eager to see the new Ghostbusters, first of all, oh there you are, and uh, <laughs> and if you were super <laughs> eager to see Jared Leto be a vampire, oh there you are, yeah. yeah. Well, those you'll have to wait a year on those films, but uh, you know Netflix and Amazon and all the rest still have all huge back catalogs of, of streaming services, and they're constantly releasing new stuff. So there's no shortage of content for us to review, and indeed a lot of it is brand new. But uh, because this is a great opportunity to not just watch new films on streaming, but since we're on streaming anyway, it's an opportunity to explore older films uh we also have the critically acclaimed streaming club where every week on this podcast uh we review an old movie selected by our listeners and uh, from this point on it will be selected by all of our patrons at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network they also get to choose episodes of cancel too soon and explore Mm -hmm. a bunch of exclusive content it's Good, I hope. We're trying our best. Um, so in addition to reviewing the new streaming releases, uh, let me take a look at our big old list here. We got Daniel Isn't Real. From Shudder. Uh, we have Uncorked, The Decline, There's Something in the Water, and Crip Camp. Uh, we're also uh, reviewing, by listener request... Uh, the romantic comedy classic Moonstruck, which I had never seen, or at least not in its entirety. Nor had I. Not, okay. not even a friend. I'd seen the clip of Cher slapping Nicolas Cage and saying, snap out of it. We'd all seen that clip. Because that was the Oscar clip. They just show yeah. it whenever they, they quote Moonstruck. I feel like my parents might have rented this when it came out, but I was like not in the room the whole time. Because mm. like, little bits of this seem familiar, and other bits of it seem like I'd never seen this movie before in my life. Mm. And if I had, I would have remembered it, because I quite liked it. But we'll talk about that. Uh, in a little bit. The other thing that we need to talk about before we get into any of the movie reviews for this week at Critically Acclaimed is uh, uh, the tragic passing of one of my favorite filmmakers. One of my most uh, filmmakers who had a Um, big impression on me and... um, at least, boy, at, this one hit me hard. Actually. At least two of his movies, and not even the ones that are the most celebrated, were vitally important to me when I was like maybe fourteen years old. Yeah, uh, Stuart Gordon has passed away at the age of seventy-two or seventy-three. Uh, he was in his early seventies yeah. when he passed on. Uh, and good golly, if if you were a genre-loving kid, 
Uh, it's likely Stuart Gordon made you into one <laughs> back, in, in back in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, he is often credited as being the only filmmaker who was able to successfully adapt H.P. Lovecraft to film. There's a lot of H.P. Lovecraft adaptations out there. The only t- well, there's a couple that might be slightly worthwhile. I really like The Color Out of Space. I haven't uh, seen that one yet. And uh, The and, Resurrected, and Dan O'Bannon did that one. That one's quite good. That, that, one's, With, uh, that one's pretty Chris good. Chris Sarandon, um, that's a good flick. Uh, John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness is Lovecraft-ish, but it's not technically a Lovecraft story. Yeah. Uh, and But the two that everybody was al- always citing, and when he passed, they were the first two people mentioned, were Reanimator and From Beyond, uh, which are slimy, disgusting, lurid, horrendously gory, sick movies, and I love every bit of both of them. Uh, same. Um, Stuart Gordon got his uh, start doing a lot of theater, but when it came time to uh, make the move into film, he wisely realized that horror was a great gateway. Mm. Uh, and uh, he had a very a somewhat literary mind and was a fan of Lovecraft, and so he gravitated towards uh, these stories, which were in the public domain, because mm. uh, Lovecraft was not especially popular in his day. Uh, he was very influential on a lot mm-hmm. of uh, uh, famous horror writers, but his actual work was never like Stephen King. He was never a bestseller. So all of these stories about ancient gods and people going mad from seeing unspeakable horrors and fish mm-hmm. people, um, these stories fell into the public domain, so anyone can adapt them. Mm-hmm. So his first two films were an adaptation of Herbert West Reanimator, mm-hmm. aka The Reanimator, mm-hmm. uh, which is frankly one of Lovecraft's least Lovecraftian stories. It's basically a Frankenstein riff, but it's uh, he, a very good one. He admitted Lovecraft admitted in letters that it was a ripoff of Frankenstein. Yeah, it's 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 very pulpy, mm-hmm. very lurid, very mm-hmm. violent, very uh, straightforward in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Um, his second film, Stuart's second film, From Beyond, uh, is still not the most Lovecraftian Lovecraft story. It doesn't deal with any of his mythology to speak of, but it deals with really heavy ideas, and it is about a mad scientist who invents a machine that basically tunes the human brain mm. into a new wavelength so that we can see parallel dimensions, and in those parallel dimensions, there are unspeakable horrors. Uh, There's weird creatures that want to do you in or mutate your body. Yeah, yeah the, weird, the actual short stuff. story is pretty short and pretty vague. Mm. So when it came time to adapt from beyond into a movie, uh, they kind of had to get creative. There's two ways that they got creative. One, they came up with a bunch of crazy, goopy monsters. Whitney, turn off your phone. Sorry, sorry. Came up with a bunch of crazy, goopy mm. monsters. One of my favorite bits when uh, Ken Forey is fighting a giant worm in the basement. Yeah, it swallows his head. Yeah, it's really crazy. Oh, no, it, it, Jeffrey Combs gets his head swallowed. So Yeah, well, partially, but then he's fine. Uh, but uh, there's also, like, people's, like, pineal glands start mutating from exposure <laughs> to this device. And, like, pushes, wormy things start cracking the their way through the of skull. Your brain. Yeah, mm. yeah. But the other thing that they added, mm. and they added this... For two reasons. Oh, well, part- One is because Lovecraft didn't really put any women in his stories. Like, you could count the number of women in Lovecraft stories on one hand. Oh, uh, Lovecraft was blazingly sexist oh. and unbelievably racist. Yeah. It's kind of part of his stories you just kind of have to take with a, a big, gigantic chunk of salt when you're it, reading it. It helps when you're reading Lovecraft to think of his stories as the product of a diseased mind. Yeah. Because a lot of his narrators are have diseased minds, mm. so it kind of fits. Mm. Um, 
that's not necessarily that it's excusable, but if you want to experience this incredibly influential horror author, you need to find some way to deal with that or just put them aside, and I don't blame you if you do. Uh, but because his books had so few female characters, they needed to add some. And since they added female characters, well, Stuart Gordon got real kinky with From Beyond yeah. well, and added a whole bunch of completely unnecessary sadomasochism. Uh, Stuart Gordon always liked pushing the envelope. You know, you say he started in theater, but that doesn't that doesn't sort of illustrate that he's doing stuff like getting into arguments with his theater professors for being a little too risque and how he staged they, a like, version arrested for something like uh, he's, for a play? he staged a ver- I'm not sure if it was for this one but he staged a version of Lysistrata like way back in the 60s mm. uh, I'm not sure if you know the story of Lysistrata it's it's the sex strike story yeah it's a, yeah, it's, um, a it's a it's a in the era of greek tragedies this was mm. actually a comedy but it's about basically uh, all the men have been at war for so long the women are fucking sick of it so they say okay fine no more sex until you and the war mm. and the men are just like come on and the women are like nope please <laughs> maybe uh, no 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 and then of course they end the war uh, and uh, um, <laughs> it's a great play Spike Lee's Chirac is an adaptation of Lysistrata yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's a great play uh, evidently it was like diaphanous robes and boobs out everywhere and yeah he, I, from what I understand he got in a little bit of trouble for that one um so yeah, he he was always interested in sort of pushing the envelope. We're, we're talking about uh, Reanimator and From Beyond in sort of horror horror fandom terms. Yeah, but I feel like Stuart Gordon was he's more like Herschel Gordon Lewis, but with like a lot more intelligence and class. Yeah, which is a weird thing to say about films like From Beyond because he was actually interested in the ideas behind them. Yeah, they're very they're very especially I think Reanimator deals with some of the ethical conundrums of raising the dead. But I think From Beyond is really interested in like the big, this crazy weird sci-fi cosmic ideas. ideas. Yeah. yeah, that there's an infinity out there that you just can't possibly comprehend. Yeah, and um, it's it, it's a really great little film. It's, it's like in and out in eighty minutes. It's yeah. really really fantastic. Uh, from there, he directed a film called Dolls, which I actually haven't seen in a really long time. Mm. It's about evil dolls. Uh, yeah. I remember liking it at the time, but I'm, I'm not going to speak yeah. to it too clearly. Uh, he also uh, co-wrote the story for Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Classic the, the kids Disney. movie, and uh, and it holds up great. That movie, and he uh, he came to blows with Disney, wouldn't you know it? Yeah, and, and and walked off the project because Disney wanted it to be safe and Disneyfied, and he was like, "No, this is, there's more interesting stuff here. No, we're just going to do the Disney version." And you can see a little remnants. It's like uh, when you learn about all the stuff that David Cronenberg put in Total Recall. And, like, yeah. Overhoven did his own thing, but, like, there's still some Cronenberg shit in all, there. All that mutant body stuff. A lot of the, that's Cronenberg. The, the the rebel leader is just, like, this mutant twin living out of, out of in a guy's stomach. Very yeah, much yeah. Cronenberg. Um, but uh, I bet, like, a lot of, like, the giant, like, scorpion ant fights and stuff like that. I mm. bet that's some leftover yeah, stuff yeah. from Stuart Gord. Uh, from there, he did one of our favorite sci-fi movies, Robot Jocks. Robot Jocks is bloody amazing. Uh, now it's it's a low-budget film, but they did a lot with that low budget. It takes place in the future. War has been outlawed. <laughs> An all-international... I still comp- love that concept. Yeah. <laughs> like that's- war is against the law. We're, we're, we're going to declare war. Up, oh, you're under arrest. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
So all international conflicts are now decided, rather logically so, by gigantic robot fights. One-on-one giant robot fights and with we're talking, one representative from each nation. And we're talking Pacific Rim giant robots. Yeah, like, like giant like piloted tall mechs. Robots. And you know that the people who came up with Pacific Rim were fans of robot jocks. You just know Oh, yeah. It. yeah. Um, and uh, the robot fights, and this is like a 1989 movie. I think it ended up coming out in 1990, 1991. So early, it's like early 90s. Like, yeah. It was cheap by Hollywood standards but it was very expensive for By like b-movie standards yeah right? so like it actually like kind of bankrupted a studio uh but the robot fights were done mostly with stop-motion animation hmm. and they look great they look great even today they, they look hold great. up really good they put a lot of detail into those robots the plot is hit and miss there's some really broad there's characterization some, some scandal in there's, the robot fighting world in the future there's, there's some, some bullshit sexism in the movie i think is well, unnecessary but there's there's a if you pay attention to some of the details in robot jocks like you'll see a lot of ads in the background for that say things like do your part and it's a picture of a pregnant woman so even though they don't allude to it in dialogue clearly there's been some sort of uh like depopulation crisis. Yeah, a lot of characters, like and, incidental characters, are wearing like gas masks and everything like that. Yeah. There's been some sort of yeah, there's, a, there's a scene where it's like we're having meat tonight, and they lift up a, a pot, and it's like they have a single hot dog. Like there, there's yeah. there's scarcity. I, I feel like, I feel like what happened was, and I don't think they go into too much detail. We had more wars. Mm. The wars were so fucked up, they ruined the planet. Mm. And that's why we don't have any wars anymore. That, now we have robot fights. Which is really cool. I support this course of action. <laughs> uh, the next feature film he did after uh, Robot Jocks was Fortress. Well, uh, um, that was the next big one. He did a couple little uh, ones in there. But Fortress is fun. Fortress is really fun. Yeah, Christopher Lambert. Uh, and this is another dystopian film about uh, having children. Yeah. Because Christopher Lambert and his wife, uh, they had a child, but it was a miscarriage, and in this dystopian future, you're only allowed one child, and a miscarriage means you blew your shot. Yeah, miscarriage doesn't so, count. Like, uh, or so, it counts. So, and, like, and, that sucks. And when the wife gets pregnant a second time, they have a chance to raise a child. They both get sent to the fortress, mm-hmm. overseen by Kurtwood Smith, yeah. who... Uh, isn't quite human. Kurtwood uh, Smith is giving a really mm. weird performance in this movie, and I love every second of it. He's he's the warden of this like evil fortress. They put little things in your stomach that give you uh, horrible stomach aches if you step like just out of line, and they start growing. Mm. You know, like, and they'll just like blow they'll, up your whole expl- stomach. Yeah, they'll you, like, explode oh, if, so you, if you walk out. And they, yeah, they have these weird guards that are wired into the system, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's and one of those yeah, movies. Kurt, Kurtwood Smith is this not quite human character who's overseeing this future prison, and they have to find a way to escape. It's, it's actually really exciting. It's actually it's actually one of those again. It's a low budget movie, uh, but they know where to spend the money. It's one of those movies where the basic premise is pretty straightforward, but they just threw money at the details until it got crazier and, and weirder yeah. and more awesome. Uh, I'm a big fan of his movie Space Truckers. Which is weirdly elaborate considering how stupid the premise is. Here's the premise. Dennis Hopper and Stephen Dorff are space truckers. I'm with you. That's it. Like they get they're they're, they're like and, they're hauling, and hauling freight through yeah. the stars. And it's like the movie Convoy, okay? It's just it's it's like Smokey and the Bandit but without Smokey. It's just like, no, sorry, but only Smokey. Only Smokey. Only Smokey. I get that confused. But like and but it's in space and they do all this weird detailed space shit where like they overthought all the production design is hyper designed. Mm. Charles Dance shows up as a horny cyborg. Oh, I love it. That's super. Have you seen I, this? No, I haven't seen oh Space Oh my god. Would love this. Yeah, I, you need to watch I mean, this. I'm dead serious. You will w- do this as a treat mm. for yourself. <laughs> watch Space Truckers. It's not great. Mm. It's actually quite stupid, but it's so 
they put so much thought into this incredibly <laughs> stupid concept. Mm. You gotta love it. All right. He also uh, did the wonderful ice cream suit, which is a legit classic. Yeah, you and I reviewed the wonderful ice cream suit uh, back on an episode of the Two Shot. Yeah. Um, uh, what, what did we pair? Oh, it was the tuxedo. Oh yeah, uh, it was the, the, the Jackie Chan, Chan, the Chan Ch- terrible Jackie Chan film about an enchanted suit that gives him Jackie Chan powers. And uh, yeah, and the wonderful ice cream suit is a very simple story. It's based on a Ray Bradbury story mm-hmm. about these four guys who just have an ambition. They want to. They can't afford the best suit in the world. <laughs> they know, however, if they get this suit, all of their dreams will come true. It's, so they pool yeah. their money yep. and they, they're able to get the suit and they each have like one night essentially to no, make their dreams come one true. One hour in a night. <laughs> what happens is right. so there, are these, there are these five guys and they all want this perfect suit mm. so that they, they feel yeah. like with this suit they'll have the confidence to live their best lives. So Gregory Sierra wants to be a great political inspiring poet. Mm. Uh, Clifton Collins Jr., who Back then was going by Clifton, Clifton Gonzalez. 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 Uh, he want he's in love with his neighbor and he wants to woo her, but he doesn't have the confidence. Uh, Isai Morales. Mm. Um, oh, what did, he, what did Isai Morales wanted? He, he wanted to be a musician. He wanted to be a musician. Yeah, he he had, has a great musical number. Yeah. And everyone's dancing with him. Yeah. And it's great. Uh, Joe Mantegna wants to be a con man and just screw them out of the suit, but then he has a change of heart because <laughs> the suit makes him feel like a good person. And then Edward James Olmos is as, as the, the an vagrant, al- yeah. a, an alcoholic homeless guy who is like destined to ruin the suit by spilling booze on it and smoking so, cigars in so it. They, they clean him up. He's like, okay, you can't eat, you can't drink, you can't go to like, you can go smoking cigarettes, and of course he does all of these things. Yeah. And the big drama, I, I, I kind of have to tell you how this thing ends, because there's no gigantic climax. Yeah. These guys just do this stuff. Yeah, they just it's try so, on the uh, suit, it's, and it's, the suit makes them feel better about themselves, and they live their best lives. It's a wonder, it. It's a wonderfully <laughs> pleasant movie. It's yeah. really lo-fi. It's yeah. great for kids. It's a Disney movie, but yeah. Disney barely released it, and they're yeah. kind of ashamed of it. I don't think it's on Disney Plus. It fucking it's, should be. It uh, is. It's, it's really, it's, really sweet but, and wonderful and inspiring. All, all Latinx cast, uh-huh. uh, even well, just the Joe, credits. Joe Montana, but Joe Montana uh, is well. Okay, but he, he's playing a Latinx character. Yeah, really. which is when he's good in it, but yeah. that's still not great. Uh, but Sid he, Caesar has a little role in it, which is a little he's weird. Got, he he's, sells he's the really funny. Um, the opening credits are really wonderful. Mm-hmm. They're animated in sand. Yeah, they yeah, animated yeah. sand paintings and they just colored <laughs> sand. It's really pretty. I interviewed Edward James almost about this, and mm-hmm. I got to ask him about it. And that's like one of the films he's most proud of. He His should, entire career he should be. It's wonderful. Yeah, um, yeah. Stuart Gordon's really known for those. Uh, he's really known for for those horror movies. He's really known for uh, uh, the science fiction movies. Before we before we uh, move on completely, I do want to give just because it's often overlooked. Uh, uh, his movie Dagon, okay, is. Also a Lovecraft adaptation. He had yeah, a few others we didn't I, I talk about. I haven't seen Dagon. I didn't see Castle Freak either. I, I haven't seen Castle Freak since I was a kid. Again, I want to speak to it out of turn. Um, and he did a, a pretty good Lovecraft adaptation for Masters of Horror called Dreams in the Witch House. Oh, it was, um, it, it was okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, he did the most unabashedly Lovecraftian Lovecraft adaptation. Mm. Uh, it's called Dagon. And it is an adaptation partially of the short story Dagon, but mostly of The Shadow Over Innsmouth, which is considered one of Lovecraft's most iconic tales. Um, It is about uh, a guy who gets trapped in a town where all of the townsfolk have forsaken Christianity in favor of worshipping an ancient fish god, Dagon. (laughs) And in the process, they have started mating with fish from the deep. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and have started mutating. Their whole populace is mutating into fish mm. monsters. It is 
mostly great. There's some things in the movie that I don't feel quite work. Mm. Um, I think it's a little rushed in places, mm. a little slow in others. Uh, there's a really great sense of place. Everything feels really claustrophobic and moist. Uh, there's a yeah. lot of really gross monster effects. That's like you want from a Stuart Gordon joint. Mm. Um, it is often overlooked in his filmography, and if it really should not be, it's a genuinely... Uh, uh, at least like a three and a half star horror movie. Like right. it's really, mm. really good, and you should not miss mm. it if you have. Uh, the, and his final feature film uh, is probably one of his best. He did a, a little film that was in indie indie theaters for about a week called Stuck. I never saw this. Uh, it came out in two thousand seven, and Stuck is this weird psychodrama where um, Mena Suvari plays a young woman who hits a guy in her car, doesn't really know what to do, drives home with him like bloodied and stuck in her windshield. Mm. Stephen Ray, right? It's yeah, Stephen Ray. Yeah, and parks in the garage and just sort of leaves him there. Yeah, she can't deal. He's yeah, she she doesn't want to face it, and she's sort of like this like happy party girl, and doesn't really want to deal with reality at all. And meanwhile, there's this guy who is not really bleeding to death, but he's bleeding, and he can't get out of the windshield. And she kind of goes out there and just sort of starts to realize she's sort of the master of this guy's destiny, Ugh. and. Very slowly, the her, we get to see sort of the the emptiness of her mind, just sort of the darkness that her generation is living. Isn't I think that it's based on a true story. I think it is. I think it's it's based on something. I think it's um, yeah. That's creepy. Yeah, it's a true story. Uh, the, the murder of uh, Gregory Glenn Biggs was the guy's name. Yeah, uh, yeah. and and yeah, it is sort of just this realization of what must have happened to this poor guy who was stuck in a windshield. Um, Stuart Gordon was a, a, a in terms of his aesthetics and you know sort of the way we think of him he doesn't necessarily resemble Wes Craven but I think they both had similar operational ethoses mm-hmm. that is they like to work with genre and horror stuff but you can tell that they're really interested in the ideas behind that. Yeah. Uh, in ter- with uh, both robot jocks and with Fortress, there's this idea of sort of a, a dystopian world where the simple act of having children is considered a criminal act, and I think that is sort of the the idea he sprung from. Um, even though they they do work on a purely aesthetic level, I think he was much more interested in sort of the thought behind it. And I think with Stuck, I didn't see Edmund, his adaptation of the Mammoth play, mm-hmm. but it's, a, it's an adaptation of a Mammoth play, isn't right. it? So he's he's clearly going for something a little bit more theatrical, a little bit more hard hitting about the brunt darkness of the human condition. And he was having fun with it. I also think he's really underappreciated as a stylist. Like, you maybe couldn't point out, unless you saw, like, some of the monsters, you Mm. probably couldn't point out a Stuart Gordon film just by seeing one random shot of a movie you've never seen before, the way you could, say, a David Lynch movie, perhaps, or a David Fincher movie, or some of the other Davids. But uh, Stuart Gordon was a very natural filmmaker, much in the same way that, like, John Carpenter was, Mm. where his actual... Just just shoot the story. Yeah, yeah. his actual camera work rarely called attention to itself, but it always felt natural. It always flowed. And I Mm. think you can learn a hell of a lot from watching these directors who's clearly have intelligence and thought that goes into their films, but have a style that kind of disappears. So if you watch someone like Stuart Gordon, John Carpenter, Don Siegel, you will see just how elegantly a movie can be destructed, uh, constructed without calling attention to yourself and saying, hey, mom, watch me dive. Mm. There, that requires a certain amount of storytelling and maturity. And Stuart Gordon had it 
right off the bat. Yeah. His reanimator is just a very well put together low budget production. Yeah. yeah that yeah. just it never feels low budget. It never feels smaller than it actually is. It's really fucking good. Mm-hmm. Stuart Gordon will really be missed. I'm going to miss the shit out of him. And I feel like Stuart Gordon, like John Carpenter, uh, like Wes Craven, like Toby Hooper, um, like Joe Dante is another one. Uh, Landis, we can point to reasons why. But uh, there's um, (laughs) these people who were making really iconic cult horror movies that were really important to essentially a generation of dudes our age uh, who were really getting into horror movies at the time who later in their careers couldn't get the same kind of support for one reason or another. Well, I think even Uh, not even that later. Like Stuart Gordon had been trying to get a a decent scale production of The Shadow Over Innsmouth made for well over a decade mm. before he finally got Dagon made for a a relatively low budget. Like Mm. a little bigger than maybe Reanimator or From Beyond, but not much. Yeah. So he was flirting with the studio system. He, he, again, Honey, Strong the Kids Mm. was almost his movie. But... Yeah, it's just there are these people who clearly inspire people and tell great stories, but for whatever reason, Hollywood just never wants to give them money. Well, and and Hollywood doesn't want to give them money. I feel like a lot of the fans sort of stay in their glory days a little too strongly Mm -hmm. and don't want to follow them up to the end and keep on consuming their work. A, because their work becomes increasingly difficult to find. Mm -hmm. uh, And and because... Not all uh, of them keep keep at their A game throughout their whole career, but sometimes it's just because it's harder to get movies made. It's harder to get movies made. Also, you know, these people are evolving as artists. It's not that they're necessarily not doing it anymore. It's just they're doing something different now. Yeah, and Uh, some of them were always a bit more hit and miss than we recall. Mm. Wes Craven made at least like one classic movie, I think, every decade of his career. Yeah, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't he did um, um Last House on the Left. No, no, no. I'm trying to think of the Scream, 2000s. Yeah. He did um Scream 3 was 2000s. I think that mm. one's really underrated. It's underrated, but it didn't like revolutionize horror in no, the same way just, those other movies I did. I think there's going to come a day when we look back on Scream 3 and really appreciate how great that movie is. And I think and and Scream 4 Scream is getting 4 a big well, yeah. uh, uh, yeah. gesture of appreciation yeah. as well. My, my soul to take is a stinker. <laughs> That's true. Red Eye is really good. Red Eye is really but like, my point is, is that he was always kind of hit or miss. Yeah. Carpenter was a little bit more consistent. Stuart Gordon waffled a bit because he would make these like ultra low budget movies sometimes that mm. just didn't quite yeah. make the impression. But. Mm. I, uh, I I had the luck of seeing a Stuart Gordon live production mm. uh, that oh, he that's directed. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah th- th- they were touring a production of a, a play called Nevermore, which was a one-man show starring the wonderful, the great Jeffrey Combs, who was in several uh, mm. Stuart Gordon movies. Uh, he was the reanimator. Yeah. Uh, he was also in From Beyond. He was the guy with the pineal gland sticking out of his head. Mm-hmm. And uh, he did a production where he played Edgar Allan Poe doing a Poe reading, you know, sort of recreating the readings that Poe used to do, but the drama was Poe was, like, getting drunk on stage. Yeah. And um, if you know anything about Poe, you know he... It's been posited he had this weird sort of allergy to alcohol that sort of amplified its effects. Like he only needed to drink a little before he was just raving. Huh. So yeah, we got to see Jeffrey Combs go from <laughs> raving. The... <laughs> Never more, William. Never more. <laughs> anyway. Uh, but uh, yeah, Jeffrey Jeffrey Combs, of course, is a powerhouse actor. I, I've always loved him. I think uh, you know, just consume anything he's done. He's always a, a class act, Jeffrey yeah. Combs. Brings um, it in every le- – no matter how small the role, Jeffrey Combs yeah. brings it. 
Uh, he's he's fun when he's underplaying and he's fun when he's overplaying. And one of his best overplaying performances is, is in The Frighteners. Uh, oh my but, god, my body <laughs> is a roadmap of pain. <laughs> if you look at his chest, like one of his nipples is missing. Oh it's, so god, it's so gross. Um, anyway, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. Um, but yeah, Stuart Gordon really uh, had a good kinship with live actors. He had a good idea as to what you know made good theatrical drama. Mm. That showed in a lot of his movies. He did like his horror films to be sort of big and operatic and deal with large ideas. He was a good, complex filmmaker, and he will be sorely missed. Yeah. Uh, if you don't get a chance to see Nevermore, which you probably won't, you mm. can see Stuart Gordon direct Jeffrey Combs as Edgar Allan Poe mm. in, the, in their second Masters of Horror episode, The Black Cat. Which is an adaptation of The which, Black Cat, but the protagonist is at Grand Pop. I didn't see that one. It's okay. okay. It's, it's, it's hindered by budget. Like, yeah. they couldn't, like, it should be, like, like sort of like a hammer horror kind of gothic style, and it just looks kind of cheap, but yeah. it's pretty good, and Jeffrey Combs is really good in it. Um, so few films that can get, that can just nail that. I know. I feel like the last one to do it really well was uh, Sleepy Hollow. Sleepy Hollow. Sleepy Hollow nailed it, though. Yeah. Sleepy Hollow, that's, well, that's a pitch perfect recreation. That's better, actually, than some of the, films. Some of the hammer films. Yeah, some of the films that it's, that it's, Mimicking yeah, does even better job. Sleepy Hollow is bloody fantastic, and it's, I, on, it's underrated. I, I think it's getting. I think it's got its appreciation. Okay, I do. I think it's getting there, and I think it's. Mm. God damn, it's a good movie. Okay, anyway, we need to move on. But Stuart Gordon, rest in peace. Um, seriously, mm. one of my favorite filmmakers. It, I met him once. I got to do the robot jocks fist bump with the yeah. thumb up. <laughs> there like, you go. We're gonna do it right no, here. No, we're not because social do, distancing. Do oh, fine. Bonk. <laughs> Just imagine it. But, uh, yeah, God damn it! what a, what a nice man. Anyway, <laughs> uh, let's move on and review some streaming films. And since we just uh, talked about one of the great horror filmmakers of our lifetimes, uh, let's talk about a new horror movie that debuted on Shudder. Mm-hmm. This is called uh, Daniel Isn't Real. Yeah, the, what you need to know about this is that it, it, was, uh, it was directed by uh, – let me look up the director's name – Adam Egypt Mortimer is the director's name, but what you need to know is that it was produced by Elijah Wood, and Elijah Wood <laughs> has, 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 be- taste. has become a really fascinating tastemaker in sort of the underground horror community. Just earlier this year, he was in a film called Come to Daddy, which mm-hmm. was really twisted and sick about uh, uh, an adult who was going to find his long-lost father, and he learned that his father was this horrible alcoholic, and mm-hmm. they have these big arguments, and they just sort of hurl insults at each other, and they lie to each other, and then the father dies. <laughs> And then there are twists after that. Uh, so he also produced Mandy. He produced yeah. The Color Out of Space. He produced The Greasy Strangler. <laughs> yes, he did. He is interesting. <laughs> Elijah Wood is an interesting man. And, yeah. Uh, and yeah, he's, he's now he's produced Daniel Isn't Real, which is a really fascinating horror riff on the movie Drop Dead Fred, in a way. Uh, yeah. If you recall Drop Dead Fred, Phoebe Cates, back when she was acting. Uh, played a young woman with a very domineering mother, and she, as a child, had an imaginary friend named Drop Dead Fred. Played uh, by one of the actors from The Young Ones. Yeah, whose name actually mm. escapes you right now, and I should look that up. Yeah. Um, but uh, they, uh, she had to say goodbye to this Fred, and the mom, like, t- like put mm. Drop Dead Fred in a box and threw the box in the closet, and she hadn't seen him since. Mm. And then we catch up to her as a woman in her 30s, and she's just leading kind of a milk toast wallflower life. You know, she's pushed around by everybody in her yeah, life. Just, yeah, just not happy at all. And then she goes to her mom's house, and she finds the box. The box pops open, and Drop Dead Fred is here again. Mm. But now he's he can like control the environment. He's clearly like a magical being. And... He's making her life a living hell 
Or is he? Or is he setting her free? But he's still yeah. behaving like the rambunctious kid yeah. fantasy thing. It's a movie with a tone that's kind of all over the place. Sometimes it's, it's really dark. Sometimes it's very light. It's actually a really dour movie. Uh, it's, yeah. It, it, there's stuff I like about it. There, it's, it's well remembered and I don't know why because it's actually not that good. Um, I think it's but, one of those movies where you see when you're a kid and it's just a little too mature for kids but it's got clear kid appeal. Yeah. That I think people saw the movie. I, I know I did. Hmm. I saw the movie and I was like there's a lot of things about this that don't work but I kind of appreciate that this is a concept mm. for kids that's pushing it in adult directions yeah. and I can kind of see like like sort of my path ahead of me yeah. like just don't be Phoebe Cates and then an imp mm. from hell won't ruin your life not Phoebe mm-hmm. Cates in general. Phoebe Cates is great, but just Phoebe Cates in this movie where everyone walks all over. All right. okay. this, this is about a young boy. Uh, Daniel isn't real. Is about a young boy named Luke. He's living with his mother, who is uh, suffering from paranoid delusions. She she is mentally ill. She has schizophrenia. And played by Mary Stuart Masterson. Played by, yeah, I haven't seen him in a while. The wonderful actually. Mary Stuart Masterson. Yeah, and uh, when she's having one of her episodes, he uh, wanders out into the neighborhood and witnesses a death. And oh, not just a death, like a really, a really gruesome, death. like 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 gets to see the body and blood everywhere. It's just really horrible. Yeah. And right at that moment, this kid named Daniel appears next to him, and we learn very quickly that Daniel is something only he can see. Daniel's his like sort of imaginary friend that was just sort of summoned into being by this trauma and. Luke seems to ta- start to take everything in stride. They start doing adventure stories together. They sword fight with brooms. It, it seems like kind of a halcyon kid sort of yeah. experience. And everyone's just sort of just like, eh, kids have imaginary yeah, friends. It's-, it's a coping mechanism. The marriage, the moms, their parents are getting divorced apparently. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it seems fine. And then Daniel encourages Luke to take all of mom's medication and mm-hmm. grind it up into like a mm-hmm. smoothie mm-hmm. because then it'll give her superpowers and mm-hmm. mom almost dies. And yeah, mom almost dies and so uh, it, it finally comes out that you know this Daniel character put him up to it. So she says, "See this dollhouse? Put Daniel in the dollhouse." They put Daniel in the dollhouse. He's there. Mm-hmm. Uh, fast forward to Luke when he's a, he's a grad student. He's, he's like, in college. He's in college. He's become sort of timid. He's been dealing with a lot of the trauma of his past uh, reasonably well, but he's kind of turned into a bit of a gloomy soul. Mm-hmm. His uh, mother is in deteriorating mental health. Mm. And when he's visiting her, trying to take care of her, trying to make sure she doesn't hurt herself, uh, he decides to open up the dollhouse and Daniel pops out again. Now he's fully grown and played by a very good Patrick Schwarzenegger. Patrick, yeah, pa- played John- by Patrick Schwarz- Schwarzenegger. And- Arnold Schwarzenegger's son. I haven't really seen him in anything else, but he's He's good in this. He's good. In, he's good because uh, we we've already learned that Daniel is kind of malevolent, and he pops out. He's got the slicked back hair. He's wearing kind of a leather jacket. He's the cool guy. He's basically that, Tyler Durden. He's more or less Tyler, Tyler Durden. The first time we see him, he's in the bath. He's naked in the bath, like when when, yeah. when we see the adult Daniel and. Yeah. And so, yeah, now he realizes that he has his imaginary friend again, and his imaginary friend wants what... I, I don't understand why this is an impulse of imaginary friends and demons, but he wants his friend to get like drink and get laid a lot. Well, I think it's the uh, idea that our, our hero, Luke, uh, has been denying himself his life he's kind, because he's taking care of his mother all sort by of, himself. Yeah, sort of sensory pleasures. So, and, here, so you're in college, and I think this is a natural impulse. When you're in college, you want to do the college things because once you're out of college, you're not supposed to do that anymore. You're not supposed to drink. You're not well, supposed to sleep around. You're, you're supposed to try those things out for the first time because yeah. you're finally old enough to do those exactly. things. Exactly. And yeah. Luke has been denying himself all of these things in part because he worries about his own mental health and in part mm-hmm. because he's been taking care of his mom. So now Daniel is here to basically uh, facilitate 
and yeah. he is helping him uh, meet girls, take up art, uh, impress people by like there's a there's a scene where uh, Luke is struggling in a in a test, mm-hmm. and Daniel has written crib notes all over his body, and he's like stripping in front of everybody, and it's kind of weird because it's it's eroticized, but it's also very different like it's a scene i haven't seen before <laughs> well and we we start to get hints that daniel might not just be in luke's head because there's a scene where um luke is charming uh his his would be his intended uh, uh, so, uh played by played sasha by lane sasha lane, lane from american honey which if yeah. you haven't seen american honey seek that one out because that one's really terrific but she's uh, also in the new hellboy which is quite good oh right she's in yeah. the new hellboy uh, forgot about Hellboy. I, I but quite I love, liked it, but I fair. love American Honey. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, because she like opens a book and says like re- like what's on this page, and Daniel's able to read over her shoulder and dictate to what, Luke, to who's Luke, across the room, who's all across the room. So either Luke is psychic, or Daniel is like some sort of other being, like yeah. who's outside of his body. Yeah, there's there's um, no conceivable way he would memorize this random book in a bookstore. Yeah. Now when. Uh, Daniel starts encouraging him to become more violent, uh, just like he did when they were kids. He, mm-hmm. uh, Luke becomes a little bit miffed at this, but then, of course, Daniel won't go away. Yeah. And Daniel begins insisting on his, insisting on his way, and at one the- really disturbing scene, starts being able to insert himself. There's this bit where uh, he's making Luke take drugs, sleep with some... Luke has started like kind of dating someone, mm-hmm. and he's a decent, you know... He doesn't want to, like, he feels like it would be cheating. Mm. And Daniel is just like, well, listen, if you won't do it, let me take over. Mm. And Luke is just like, I don't think we can do that. The scene where <laughs> Daniel tries to take over Luke's body, uh. they visualize that in a really disgusting, horrifying mm. way. Yeah. And I appreciate this movie takes a story that could have been very simple. Mm. And they find ways to film this thing that make it just more shocking, more yeah, uncomfortable, a lot of, more ugly. There's a lot of like yeah, darkness and flickering surreality. Yeah, there are numerous direct allusions to Hieronymus Bosch. Yep. Uh, and in fact, w- what they finally end up coming to the conclusion of is that it's, it's like all these beings of chaos. Uh, unfortunately, as we get sort of to the climax and how when Luke and Daniel eventually have to face off. The the rules just sort of disappear from this movie, and we we learn sort of the nature of the dollhouse and what was going on inside, but we don't, and it might be part of Daniel's subconscious, and there's this weird sort of here's the problem with this counter movie. puppetry going on. Let, let just me, nothing makes sense in the here, last here, act. Here's the problem with this movie, and mm-hmm. I and I actually really really like this movie. I want to make this abundantly clear. Yeah, I think this is a sharp, frightening, excellently acted horror movie with big ideas and for the most part it capitalizes on all of them. That's great. Uh The problem is is that this is the kind of horror movie, it's a lot like Lights Out in a way, a movie I also Mm. mostly like. Um, In that it is about mental illness and it is about literalizing the horrors of mental illness through the application of the supernatural. I don't have a problem with that. Mm. I think horror has a unique ability to deal with with mental health issues in a more confrontational way. Mm. Problem is, is that mental health issues aren't this like binary villain thing where once we overcome whatever our personal demon is, we're fine. Mm. So the idea that this movie has to wrap up is kind of its undoing because once it starts trying to get tidy, 
the allegory kind of falls apart a bit or it comes to a conclusion that really isn't very helpful to anyone in the mm-hmm. audience who's actually dealing with well, any of the things that this any of the anxieties this movie mm-hmm. is dealing with. So the last 15 minutes or so I think are exciting and interestingly visualized and really cool monster effects really in there. Really cool yeah. stuff in it. Like I really like the actual inside of the dollhouse. It looks like Looks like the movie Mandy, actually. It looks yeah. like the Mandy. It looks like if you're wearing like the old blue and red like 3D glasses, mm-hmm. but there's like a lot of flickering lights on, and it's like kind of hopping between light schemes a lot. Like it's just really kind of ugly, uncomfortable, but in a good, scary kind of way. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, the actual ending struck me as. Easy and also just kind of beneath the rest of the film. I think the film well, was smarter than this. It, it's clearly about you know this this uh, young man who's having a crisis of con- of uh, confidence and how he is being forced to act out of his own character and the dangers yeah. of that. I, I I don't think it's necessarily specifically about his grief or trying to overcome his traumatic childhood. I agree. Um, in fact, I think it's really... I don't think res- it's that easy. Yeah. I think it's actually really responsible the way it treats the Mary Stuart Masterson character. Yes. Uh, because I think it's accurate. I think Mary Stuart Masterson gives a really good performance uh, in sort of capturing a certain kind of mental illness without making it seem like movie crazy. And uh, the way they treat the character and what happens to the character is all unbelievably fair, accurate, and realistic and helpful. Yeah, I just uh, don't think they necessarily holds true for Luke. It doesn't hold true for Luke, but, like, again, this isn't – it's about Luke sort of seeing trauma and Daniel appears during that trauma. But well, it's also it's about also the, fear of, the fear of dealing with his trauma. It's no. more about – again, like I said, it's more – I don't think – We I don't think, actually need the, him to witness the trauma for any no. of the story to function. See, that's the thing is I think the trauma mm-hmm. isn't actually important to his story. I think the yeah, trauma is yeah. important to the plot. Exactly. What he's dealing with, and it's something that, again, is also kind of addressed in Lights Out – uh, isn't so much that I dealt with a specific trauma and that's going to come to life as a demon. It's actually the idea and the fear and anxiety that a lot of people live with, which is that me- your mental health issues uh, might be um, – what's the word I'm looking for? Um, generational? Oh, the, uh, hereditary. Hereditary. Yeah. yeah, the hereditary deals with this as well. Mm. The idea that I might seem like I'm going, like I'm fine, but I know that I have a parent mm. who, who had extreme mental health this, issues. Yeah. And what if that is – ahead of me and there's a bit where he starts seeing Daniel and he goes to see his mom and he was just like how did this start with mm. you and there's this great scene where Mary Sue Madison starts realizing that what he's feeling out is he's trying he's kind of telling her that he is having the same problems that she is having he thinks he might be schizophrenic and yeah. she wants to help him and I actually thought that was a really beautiful scene that's very sad very dark mm. but very genuine yeah um there's a lot I like about this movie. <laughs> this movie is a really excellent horror yeah, movie, yeah. and I do recommend it. I just think that, like quite a few horror movies, Stephen King is certainly guilty of this. The ending isn't perfect. The ending, yeah. I think, I think uh, well, the, takes the easy way out. But the, the the beginning, like the middle of the film, reveal as to sort of the true nature of the story and what's really going on, I thought was kind of a letdown. Mm. Um, where was it, it too easy? Do you think? I, well, it was like- I, I always prefer films that stay within sort of the conceptual or the symbolic, and when they start making it like literal and plot based, it becomes way less interesting. Mm. Uh, Us was another movie that did that. It's like if if there were, you're running into the sort of evil version of yourself, isn't that enough that there's an evil version of yourself? Yeah, Do you the have more to understand information they gave us in Us, the less there, 
they were living in tunnels underground and eating rabbits, and yeah. it turns out they were living mirror in tunnels and hole. None of that stuff makes sense. It kind of makes the movie weaker to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still think it's a great movie, but I do think that's a fair criticism. Da- Daniel isn't real. It's not quite as grievous a, a, a crime here, but I, I did find it a little less interesting when there's sort of like the big twist, the big reveal where they're looking through the pages and they come up with the answer essentially. So now there's rules mm-hmm. to the universe and they introduce the rules, rules and then they break all of these no, rules. I don't, think, so. but I don't think they ever actually introduce rules. I don't think they ever actually do. I think every time no, someone... No, they, they do. We, no, learn, no, we just, learn the nature of, of one particular we, character. We kind and, of yeah. learn the nature of something, but mm. that doesn't establish rules. It just tells you that this is... This is an entity of some kind. It doesn't actually just say yes, and his weakness is kryptonite. They don't act. There's none of that. That's not a. They they don't give you a clear mythology. There's no like clear way to kill him. I'm reminded actually of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, the original, Mm -hmm. uh, in which. Uh, they keep coming up with ways to stop Freddy. I was like, okay, well, if we bring him into the real world, mm. then we can kill him. And then, okay, well, actually, that well, doesn't... A corporeal, a- corporeal body now, yeah. and he can die. Well, it kind of works, but it actually doesn't. And then what actually happens is Nancy just says, you're in my mind, you're in my dreams, they're my dreams, you're a figment, you have no power over me, and Freddy just disappears. And you think, oh, this is great. Everything's fine. And then it turns out, no, he's a <laughs> demon from hell and cannot be stopped. And that's the vibe I got from here, which is right. we think that because Daniel is a figment, because Daniel is keyed into the subconscious, whether he is real or isn't, uh, that our hero must still be the one in charge. And that's not necessarily true because they never tell you otherwise. Okay. So for me, I think that's just a little bit of vagueness. That part didn't bug me. I just think the ending just doesn't give me... I don't don't, don't think it lets the allegory down. I I don't want to give the impression that it sort of ruins the film. I just think that it, it... Th- that moment in the, in a horror movie like this was so powerful up to that point is yeah. is a little bit it, it just makes it a little bit too simple. Well, look, we're critics, we're being critical, mm. but let's just reiterate before we eventually do our full rundown. Mm. This movie's really good. Oh, it's really good. It. You yeah, should totally yeah. see it. If you're a horror fan, see this movie. Weird, a lot of wonderful, weird, freaky yeah. visuals. Yeah, I mentioned Hieronymus Bosch. So yeah, yeah go go. It, it's on Shutter, so mm. check it out if you're right. Shutter. Uh, I'm going to move on to a thriller on Netflix that you didn't see, okay? Because it seems like the most natural segue. Uh, it is called The Decline. Okay. And I want to so, say it's French. Um, tell me about The Decline. Okay, so The Decline is uh, uh, it is a thriller about survivalists. And these are people who, um, like, have plans for how to escape large urban areas in the middle of a crisis. Hey, mm-hmm. hey. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that they actually describe it's, it's as... It's French-Canadian. It's French-Canadian. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that they actually describe... Um, as uh, like one of the things that they're afraid of, the collapse of civilization, is a large H1N1 outbreak, which is not terribly far from what we're experiencing right now. Um, these are people who are trying to use Mylar bags to vacuum seal food so that they can use it in 30 years. So, and I've known people like this. I've mm. known people who just believe that extreme society is... survivalists. Yeah. So well, not even necessarily extreme. I think there are levels. There are people just like, listen, society feels like it's hanging on a thread, and we just want to make sure if anything collapses, we're safe. Mm. Um, there's a good Werner Herzog documentary. Um, called, what's the one about the internet? It's a long title. Oh, um, uh, Beholds the... Oh, God, what is it? Yeah. Lo and behold, Lo and behold, the ex oh, what is it, like the ecstasies of the connected world, or yeah, something, something like that. that. Yeah. Um, and what they talk about is that there's actually a decent possibility that at some point in the future, 
there will be a solar flare large enough that it creates an electromagnetic pulse that wipes out all electronics on the planet. Mm. Like, that's not outside the realm of possibility. And if that happens, we're so reliant on the internet, mm. that's bad. That's going to yeah. really throw everything into chaos. So that's the kind of thing these people are sort of afraid yeah. of. So It's called, lo and behold, reveries of the connected world. There you yeah. go. I mean, don't, don't lose any sleep over that. But yeah. like, that's, a, that's, that's a thing that one of the many things I talk about in that documentary. Right. Um, so in this movie, a group of survivalists who are all just sort of young enthusiasts, uh, you know, eager to train, eager to be ready for the end of the civilized world as they know it, uh, go on a survivalist retreat, which <laughs> is right. which seems like a good idea until you realize you're in a thriller. Uh, so it's run by this guy who does a lot of YouTube videos about how to prepare for the apocalypse, and he they they all go and they're sleeping in like a cabin and he's got solar panels and uh, a maze of like footpaths around here and you got to make sure you always stay on the right path because the left path is booby trapped um and they do things like have cookouts and uh practice uh let's see they they uh, they do firearms training and they uh even do things like handle explosives like what if you had to make your own explosives uh, and at that point, someone blows up. Uh-oh. And now they're like, oh, shit. Are, are they going to be okay? They're not going to be okay. Now what? And mm. everyone's saying, well, we have to call the police. And like two guys, the guy who runs the place and this one other guy who's a little too extreme, are saying that, well, let's not jump to any conclusions here. And they're like, why? Well, we're at a survivalist compound with a shit ton of guns and a dead body. <laughs> It's not going to look good for any of us. Maybe we should just quietly dispose of the body. Mm. And before you can... You know what? I've seen enough movies. This always goes really, really well. Have you ever... Mm. I'm asking someone, and please, tweet me. Uh Have you ever seen a movie in which you accidentally killed somebody... And you didn't tell the cops, you disposed of the body, and it went great. <laughs> and it wasn't like, and and I'm mm. going to make a caveat here because there are some really dark movies out there. And it wasn't indicative of you being an evil, horrible person who's definitely going to hell. Like, oh, is yeah. it just like the wise call and it's fine? I've seen some, like, plenty of dark comedies. It's like, oh, we killed Trevor. Well, just throw him in the van. You know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think, yeah, is, is there... Is there ever a movie where that goes good? Like, I don't think there is. Or somebody finds a bunch of money and they're just okay. Yeah, these are are clear moral parables. And I'm pretty Mm. sure by this point, any person who this happened to Mm. would remember... I mean, yeah, it's a moment of panic and you're scared. And yeah, maybe you're in a situation like very bad things where there's drugs around or something and it's going to be bad for you. On the other hand, we've all seen movies... (laughs) And we know that if we hide this body, you're going to kill everyone in this room or end up like in a wood chipper out back. <laughs> so very, very quickly, everything goes really bad. And a, mm. bunch of, and a bunch of the survivalists are running in the woods from the other ones. Yeah. So you see where this is going. It's not a particularly ingenious premise. It is, however, slick. Like it's well crafted, not right. not stylish to the point of being distracting, but just very well done. The motivation, like I buy that the two characters who are really gung ho about this would be mm-hmm. like they very specifically set these two people up. I buy that they would make this horrible decision. I buy that no one else would. 
Right. Uh, the actual, like, action that occurs here when they're actually like being hunted and everything isn't doesn't go to like hard target extremes it's actually pretty muted there's a couple of shootouts a couple of booby traps um and it's suitably intense there's some good fights some good framing um i wish i had more to say about it (laughs) i really do but it's actually just very straightforward it is however very well done Okay, And if that kind of thing sounds like a good idea to you, this thriller in the woods, a bunch of survivalists turning on each other, bit of action, bit of suspense, chase, fights, uh, this is a solid version of that. However, I'm unlikely to remember it in a year. Yeah. That's the real danger of it. It's excellently crafted, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't make much of an impression. Okay. So... Sorry to hear it. Yeah, I, just, I, I, I didn't. I didn't it, get to see that one. It but just yeah. doesn't explore the premise terribly in a, like a terribly nuanced mm-hmm. way. It doesn't raise like, a question uh, that I've never seen before. I've, I've it's seen, well made, but not so well made. I'm like, oh, I'm seeing this genre for the first time. Yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of survivalist tales, mostly you know, plague or zombie movies of sure. some stripe or another, and about how you know the people who sort of take on this uh, survivalist mindset are usually kind of okay, but then, of course, they become, like, the fascist rulers of the wasteland. Uh, and, Ten Cloverfield Lane's a good example. Yeah, this, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, abuse stems from that mindset. So even yeah. though they're right because you're surviving, they're still apocalypticists at heart. Yeah. And I feel like are, they're We're surviving, so, but why? And for yeah. what purpose? Like, the, is this, are these really the people you want to survive? Mm-hmm. Like, There are so few films that deal with that the sort of apocalyptic mindset mm-hmm. In like sort of a, an interesting or thoughtful or philosophical sort of way, mm. uh, we see those characters enacting these things. But so many of these movies are just reduced to people screaming at each other and then shooting mm. each other, and it's just not interesting after a while. I feel like the most uh, effective like characters mm. like that are like old episodes of The Twilight Zone. Yeah, where they're really people like stuck in bunkers and mm. shit, like, and people are worried about the next, the end, the nuclear war coming mm. to destroy us all. Well, like, because you you think of something like that, and those guys, you know, they're in charge of the bunker, and they're they're natural leader types, and they bark orders, but everybody sort of listens and takes them a little bit seriously because clearly they know what they're doing. And when they're confronted, it's usually in, through dialogue. It's not like holding a gun to their head and yelling. It's like, I think you're the way you're thinking is wrong. This has gotten us through to here, but you're only going to be functional in a society in a very specific t- like time and place. Mm. It's only from like from the time of the apocalypse to the point where we're kind of okay again, only then do you serve a function. Yeah. So those types of people actually don't serve much of a function unless the world actually does fall apart. Yeah, it's a good point. And even if they get their biggest fantasy, it, they're actually not going to be useful for that very long. Yeah. Uh, That's something that we kind of touches on but doesn't do enough with. No movies touch on it. Like a Twilight Zone episode might touch on this. I feel like um, – oh, gosh. Uh, um what was the one with Martin Freeman as the dad in the zombie apocalypse? Oh, yeah, what um, was that? That was pretty good. Um, it was called, like, Cargo or something? Yeah, it was Cargo, uh, Cargo. yeah. That was a pretty good one, yeah. I think that one deals with it because it's not about an apocalypticist. It's about just this dad who's just yeah. trying to, to look after a kid. Yeah, that, a, if it. you haven't seen it, it's pretty good. Uh, it's a zombie apocalypse, and Martin Freeman and his wife and their infant child uh, are trying to survive. She dies, he gets bitten, and he's desperately trying to find a place to that this child will be safe before he turns into a zombie. Yeah, yeah. It's a good premise. It is a good premise. It's actually, the short film it's based on is way better. Oh, I, I so didn't I re- see the short. Yeah, you see the short. It's like ten minutes long. It, mm. The short film is 
exceptional. <laughs> and and, the and movie, it's also Martin Freeman, isn't it? Uh, no. Oh, right. No, I don't think it is, but it's the same director. All right. um, and uh, the short film was exceptional. The movie is the short film, but they added an hour and a half to it. Mm. Uh, but, like, the movie's pretty good. Mm. Um, anyway, yeah, this is this is fine if you're looking for something new on streaming and you like thrillers. This will mm. this will get you there. All right. But it's just unremarkable. Uh, if you're looking for something uplifting, we've been talking about a lot of horror and death and survivalism. Why don't yeah. we talk about Crip Camp? Uh, uh, I can't think of a reason because Crip Camp is amazing. Crip Camp is great. This is uh, the latest film from uh, Higher Ground Productions, which is the Obama's production company. Yeah, they previously so, did you know, American Factory, which won the, doc- the Academy Award for Best Documentary last year, didn't it? Nominated. I'm not sure if it, I don't remember if I think it, won, it won, actually. I think it won. It's a okay. great documentary about what happened when a Chinese corporation uh, purchased an American factory and about how this small town in America thought that, oh, great, globalism is going to save our economy. And in fact, they just turned out to be the same capitalism all over again. Yeah. yeah and they all and got like shut out and, and unions were re- replaced and, by automation. And yeah. yeah that, that they just was, sucked. But it's uh, a good re- documentary. Re- really good. I mean, I've, it, it's a kind of story that unfortunately I've seen hundreds of times before and in other documentaries as well you know but uh but really as well it's it's really it's done really well uh my favorite scene in american factory is uh, all of the scenes with the american office guys going to china to go to sort of their their corporate soirees and they're all drinking and having these big expensive parties and they have live shows and they're all just sort of saying, yeah, man, this being part of this corporation is so great and you realize this is just sort of like Caligula's feast while the workers are <laughs> suffering. Like, it's completely meaningless. Um, yeah, Crip Camp is a really interesting documentary. It's directed by James Lebrecht and Nicole Noonan, and it is about a place in New York called Camp Jened, J-E-N-E-D, which was uh, founded in 1971. And, oh, no, 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 1950s. Or 1950s, but yeah. it's... it's a, takes place in 1971. Mostly. Uh, where uh, they sort of revisit a, a generation of campers, and it's a, a summer camp, like a usual kind of summer camp, hmm. for kids with disabilities. Yeah. Uh, so there's a, you know kids in wheelchairs, there's kids with uh, cerebral palsy. Spinal bifida. Uh, yeah, yeah, what, yeah. What, uh, they all have different kinds of, of disabilities, but they all get to go here. Uh, they, all of their needs are taken care of. This was a really a rarity, especially in the 1970s. Uh, this was before you know everything was handicapped accessible, so it was kind of hard getting to and from a lot of places. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they, and they, also, yeah. they, uh, they interview a lot of these people and talk about how kids with disabilities, when it comes to like the educational system, were essentially just pushed aside. They were mm-hmm. put in basements. special spatial class classes and basements, and they weren't allowed to... If they were allowed co- to get yeah. an education at all. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. They definitely weren't allowed to co-mingle with the able-bodied kids. Mm-hmm. And, and, and also, this is before there were regulations that actually... Yeah. Made sure that you know, how, like when you go onto like a street corner and there's a ramp so that someone in a wheelchair yeah. could get up there. That didn't used to be a thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so like so, there there was a but, lot of extreme roadblocks that were in the way for, towards people with disabilities from living a, 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 a life basically. Yeah. And so this camp represented for a lot of young people an opportunity to be to not be. The only person that they knew with disabilities, or only like yeah. a couple of people that they knew, but to be surrounded by people who treated them like people, mm. and with caretakers who actually cared about making sure that they lived fun lives, and that they and they would have like uh, uh, 
you know, the kind of experiences people want to have at camp, where you play games and you fall in love and you have your first makeout session. Yeah, there, and- there's a really hilarious bit where uh, they're, they're revisiting the camp, like in their heads, of the, the kids who went there and they're adults now and they're talking about going back to the camp in the 1970s. And they're talking, yeah, there's this spot over by, like, behind this cabin. We made out there a lot. And there was this over spot by, the, like, we made out there a lot. It's like, <laughs> this kid, just, just horny kids, yeah. just like any other kids. And, uh, but what's interesting there. about it is we see a lot of like home video footage from this camp. We meet a lot of people. We find out how much it meant to young people. But what's really awesome about this is that we see the domino effect that this camp had. And we see the kids talking about how this camp showed them that a life as part of a society where they're actually uh, valued, valued yeah. and where they're actually... Uh, uh, systems in place where that they can live, uh, you know, a normal social life, mm. uh, which they can't have in their hometowns. Um, they talk about how before you know that that's possible, you don't know to dream about it. Yeah. And now all of these people who went to this camp have standards that surpass what actual society has set in place for them. And a lot of them became political activists mm-hmm. and actually championed genuine, important political social change. And like the last two thirds of this documentary is after the camp, where all the kids that we met at this camp became these became awesome activists, activists. Yeah. <laughs> and did these, who were like fighting for yeah. for uh, legislation uh-huh. to help people with disabilities. Did these sit-ins yeah. where the FBI tried to get them kicked out, and the Black Panthers were making them food so that they could stay there as long as they wanted. Uh, the, and of course, there's that whole spate of you know doughy white politician dudes who yeah. are just sort of oh, I'm not going to pay attention to that. Oh, it's yeah. just protesting. And or they would, or like the guy uh, who's actually in charge and could write the legislation mm-hmm. sends some flunky to read it prepared statement and then the flunky leaves and he like locks himself in an office and they kick down the door <laughs> to get him out of there so they can say no you listen to fucking us because that is not okay like you just we just wanted this common sense legislation where we could not be discriminated against and where it's possible for us to actually live our lives and you threw out some separate yet equal bullshit <laughs> Boy, was it inspiring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Boy, what a great story of great people. Uh, gr- great story, great people. Uh, enacting real change, mm-hmm. showing that these types of protest movements do have a lot of traction and they are really important. And mm-hmm. when you write your senators and when you bug your local politicians, they're going to friggin' listen. Yeah. Even if you have to break down their door because they work for you, goddammit. Yeah, and how much they of- don't want to. And they, their whole thing was like, yeah, listen – it would be nice if you had ramps, but it would be pretty expensive. So you're just going to have to live like third-class citizens forever. Because it would be expensive for me. Yeah. yeah. Like, I'm like, fuck you. It, it would be a lot of hard work for me, and I don't want to do my job. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's really, really horrendous. Um, it, it's just sort of a good – not just good, just a, a wonderful example of civics in action. Yeah. And it was just great to see. All of the people are just really interesting people. Mm-hmm. We do get a little peek into uh, sort of the inner politics of their own lives, mm-hmm. uh, how there's – you know, prejudice against the people with cerebral palsy, for instance, whereas if you had polio, you were 
Vaunt- treated yeah, better treated than better. Other yeah, 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 yeah. It's like the the way you were disabled somehow. Like there's there, there there like hierarchies, different that, str- yeah, social yeah. strata within the the, the disabled communities and yeah. at the camps. But they were all talking about it in a very sort of humorous way. It's yeah. like, well, you know, we had these weird prejudices. It was so stupid. Like yeah. they even say that to the camera. But they talk uh, about like how like listen, they've come this far. Mm-hmm. You know, they signed legislation. Then they had to fight for decades for them to actually enforce the legislation. And now it seems like, okay, things are better. They're actually still not good. Yeah. And there's a lot of dehumanization, uh, just not necessarily in all of the actual social like structures of the law and uh, the way that society is like laid out. Although there, there's still a lot of improvement that needs to be made there. And there's a lot of places that are nowhere near as accessible as they should be. Yeah. Um, but they talk about how there's more hurdles left to come. And a lot of it is just how people who don't have these disabilities that actually affect their lives on a daily basis. Because mm. a lot of people have disabilities of various levels. But um, one of the big hurdles that we have to deal with, and this is going to probably take too long, but we have to keep trying, uh, is we have to change the way mm. that these people are seen because there's two... And we see it in the movie where people are just like, oh, they want ramps? What next? Like, I don't know, dignity? What, what, the, <laughs> what the fuck is the matter with you? Get the fucking ramps. Jesus fucking yeah, Christ. Yeah. I remember when I was in school and they were still like, hadn't installed all these ramps and everything. And they were like, well, let's build these. Build the fucking ramps. Holy shit. I remember the first day we actually had them and people could actually get them. It was ridiculous. Um, anyway, it's a true story. It's a documentary. It's very thoughtful, very kind, um, incredibly inspiring. What a fascinating group of people. Mm. Um, and what I love about it, especially is that it's not just about, you know, this, you know, wave of activism that led to an improved system. They found a good angle. Like, yeah. like we want to tell a doc. I don't know where. I'd be, I would love to interview these filmmakers and ask, like, what was the seed from which you started this? Was it originally you wanted to tell a story about social activism, but then you found out that a whole lot of people who are involved in it all went to the same summer camp? Mm-hmm. Or did you start at the summer camp and then find out where everyone went? I think they started with the summer camp because that was a fascinating place. Yeah. It was kind of unusual in the annals of uh, of. Um, camp history, I yeah. suppose. Um, I just think it's interesting because, like, I, yeah. I think the best documentaries often, uh, or even just the best biopics when they're mm. fictionalized, you just you find an interesting in. It's not just that these people were alive and did mm. this. Yeah, like okay, no, no, no. Like, let's focus on the camp. That, that's interesting, and start from there. That's a yeah, great no. way to frame a story. That's great. Yeah. Um, we are two able-bodied film critics. Yeah. Um, well, mostly, uh, I have a bad knee, but that's not the same. Thing. Uh, no, it's not the same thing. Yeah. Uh, but uh, if you you should look up Kristen Lopez. Yes. Uh, on Twitter, she's at journeys underscore film, and she uh, is a disabled film critic. She's spoken very eloquently mm. about uh, being a disabled film critic, and she is she speaks very glowingly of this. And look mm. look her up and see what she has to say about it because it's actually really beautiful. She's written and she, she's, she's written. written ex- also, she's just an amazing writer. So, yeah, and on top of just being a great critic and uh, she, we, she and I actually do a podcast for a Patreon called Based on a True Podcast where we talk mm. about uh, movies that are based off they're like biopics mm. or that are based off of true crime um, uh, we don't 
do that every month, but every time we do it, it's it's really fun. Yeah. Um. So that you can find that on her Patreon. So go mm. over and check that out if you want even more podcasts with me, as if I could possibly mm. make more. Um. But she's also written extensively about uh, the way that the industry and the films that the industry makes uh, portrays the disabled, and also the way that uh, accessibility. Yeah. Uh, is oh, yeah. it, it, it's it, it is a serious problem in the industry itself. Um. Anyway, I love this documentary. You really should yeah, see but, this documentary. I just yeah. I, I I did want to say though that if if I spoke out of turn, I'm, I may have had uh, said a few ableist words here or there, some comments. I, I want I, that I wasn't aware of. So I just wanted to say that yes, I'm an able-bodied critic, but this yeah. film did make me realize that I, I perhaps use language that I shouldn't. Yeah. And uh, we all have places to grow, and if we use wrong terminology for this sort of thing, uh, please correct us. We want to be better. Mm -hmm. We want to improve. We want the world to be a better place, and we want to be a part of that. Um, And, uh, yeah, we're a product of the generation we grew up in, and if we use the wrong terms Mm -hmm. or if we say something negative, we do not mean to, and we would love to be taken to test so that we can all improve. Um, So, yeah. Anyway, great documentary. Uh, Great documentary. Uh, A less interesting activism documentary came out (laughs) this week. Uh, It's also on Netflix. It's called There's Something in the Water. It's directed by Ellen Page. Uh, Uh, Co-directed by Ellen Page. Co-directed by Ellen. Uh, Uh, And she's also the the interviewer and the narrator. Uh, Uh, Ellen Page is uh, Canadian, and she's from specifically Nova Scotia. And she has gotten involved in... Uh, well, pervasive government racism uh, that is... Especially as it pertains to environmental policy in Nova Scotia. Yeah. And uh, how the native population of Nova Scotia and how... Native uh, and uh, and, and black. And African-American population of Nova Scotia were typically uh, seen as... Like, their communities were seen as the safe places for big corporations to dump their shit. Yeah, so, like, if... uh, One of the most, like... Honestly, like... mm. Right off the bat, I think the documentary was smart to show a map. So they show a map in Nova Scotia, and they just say, okay, here are all the communities in Nova Scotia, which are predominantly either uh, uh, native-born hmm. uh, people. The, 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 the Mi'kmaq tribe. Yeah, and, uh, and black communities. Here, hmm. Here's where they are. Okay, see that? Okay, here are where all the landfills and uh, chemical dumping grounds are. And you realize it's all the same it's places. the exact same spots. Yeah. Because, like, that's the place where mm. people are considered less valuable. Mm. The fucking assholes. So this is a documentary that looks at all of the various public and civic activists who are trying to raise awareness of how their communities their their water is being poisoned their fit their land is being poisoned they're threatening to do even worse things uh every how there are people who like everyone they know is literally dying of cancer mm. at two at, like the, at, a, at a young age the, no less the most damning scene is um it's about a third of the way in i guess uh there's uh, just a scene where we're driving around with an old woman who remembers you know sort of growing up in this community and she's just driving around pointing at the houses yeah they're dead yeah, they're dead. They died of cancer. Yeah, yeah. they died of cancer. Yeah, it's like, it's, he, it's he's still alive. Horrible. He's got cancer. Yeah. Like, it's really fucking shocking. And at I feel like at its... This is a short documentary. This documentary is like 70 minutes yeah. long. It's in, out, gets the job done. And I think I admire that efficiency because unlike uh, Crip Camp, it doesn't really have a big sweeping narrative. It doesn't... There's a bit of a resolution to one of the issues at the end, but... 
There's this no is a moment this, big, this big is, change. Well, it's because this is happening now. Mm. This is not a documentary about something that happened in history and we have the benefit of some distance. This is a documentary that is specifically designed... It's an activist documentary. Yeah, to make sure you know that this is happening mm. right now. And... It's not told with a significant amount of wit, like when Michael Moore used to do solid documentaries about relevant current issues, where there would be a lot of humor to it. This is just Ellen Page, a native Nova Scotian. Outraged, yeah. yeah, Outraged, wandering around Nova Scotia, running into people. It's interesting how many people she runs into who is just like... I know your cousin. She's like, oh, do you really? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's just that small a community. Also, you're a big movie star. You know, yeah. that's... <laughs> he's, like, he's always talking about this big movie star cousin he has. Um, but uh, it's about, like, how small this community is. And they talk about, like, you could drive for an hour and hit any part of Nova Scotia, basically, mm. is what they say. Um, how small this community is, and yet how divided it is, and how many people feel marginalized even within this tiny microcosm, and how, with just a little added effort and just concern we can raise more awareness for these issues and actually mm-hmm. do something well, about and, and them and not let people like fight these giant battles completely alone. And, well, and I think uh, and a big part of it was that the racism was really systemic. That yeah. it was uh, a lot of people were sort of raised in this idea that, oh, we can just sort of dump in these neighborhoods, not really realizing that these were based on racist ideas. Oh, those people don't matter because they're they're non-white, uh, which yeah. was you know perhaps the evil that started all of this, but now they're just doing it because that's the way it's always been done. Yeah. And sort of fighting and you know, the, the notion of environmental racism is not something that's mentioned a lot. And Alan Page is really trying to bring that to people's attention. Yeah. Which is a noble well, endeavor. It's a noble endeavor. It's not uh, necessarily a great documentary, but I don't feel mm. like it's trying to be a quote-unquote great documentary well, so much as just a, hey, did you well, know this it, is a thing? What it is is it's uh, it, it's what we have these days instead of folk songs. It's a documentary film. Uh, okay. there, there was a, a while ago I realized that a lot of political issues – were being addressed not through the folk songs, which is something our parents did, you know, the one, the hippies who went to, like, sit-ins and stuff. Mm. They wrote full angry folk songs about the evils of politics, and they would, you know, name-check Nixon in a folk oh, song. Look, look at the Bob Dylan uh, song, Hurricane, where he was actually trying to deal with a guy who was, like, literally in jail right now. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, yeah. So it, back in the 60s, there were folk songs. It, starting in the, the mid-2000s, we had documentary films yeah. to deal with these social issues. Uh, you know, look at something like an incon- inconvenient truth. Yeah. Uh, there's why we fight. There's a lot of things like this um, that, that are trying to address political issues, sometimes very immediate political issues, Fahrenheit 9-11, uh, in an artistic, informative way. And this is Ellen Page's angry folk song. Uh, it just sort of brings your attention to the issue. It is a grave injustice. Again, yeah, it doesn't sort of reach out to the grand tapestry of how this has worked throughout history. It's just happening right now in Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. Hey, if you want to take care of this thing in Nova Scotia right now, here are the facts. Do something about it. And we meet some interesting uh, people along yeah. the way, and I, I appreciate that. And there's, I, what I, I think the movie does best mm-hmm. is demonstrate this sense of community yeah. that builds around these shared crises in small towns. And, and we the, deal with some of the generational aspects no, of it. Like you, someone whose father was yeah. responsible for signing away the land that killed all this fish for many, many years. And now he died feeling guilty yeah. about it. And she still feels that pain. That's in there. But that's just interview. That's yeah. just a there's, good interview. There's a, 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 
I don't feel this way, but one could perhaps accuse this of having a little bit of white savior complex. Ellen Page is not part of these disenfranchised communities. Uh-huh. She's a rich white movie star. Yep. Uh, she isn't being marginalized in the same way. She is gay, and she's had to deal with that. And she's uh, hosted a, a TV series called Gaycation, yeah, which has you know addressed think, a lot of that. I think but, her um, co-host or co-producer uh, is, is the co-director of yeah. this, but uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, she's she's not somebody who suffered through the things that these people are going through. So mm-hmm. this idea that we need an emissary, like a white emissary, to yeah. sort of get the message across, could be taken a little bit. Uh, I could agree. Be, and could I, feel a little touchy. I, I actually agree with this. And when it's introduced with uh, Ellen Page talking about she grew up in Nova Scotia mm. and it seemed like the nicest place in the world, it has this perception mm. of being very pleasant. It's like the vacation area of Canada, and everyone goes there for lightness and fun. And how she found out there was more to it than that, and there's actually a lot of ugliness to it, and how she wanted to use her platform. Uh, to raise awareness of that, and we see footage of her, I think, on Colbert. Uh, Is that one, the one of the talk shows, one of the late yeah. night talk shows. Um, all of that's fine, and again, it's, it's, I don't, it's I don't, so, I don't, I don't begrudge, responsible. I don't I begrudge fine, any celebrity but, taking their opportunity yeah. to raise awareness of decent issues. It, you're right, though. I think it sets the documentary off on an awkward note. But what I appreciate is that after the introduction, I feel like what they're trying to do, and I'm saying they do this with varying degrees of success. Mm. Not necessarily a lot of success, but I think they're aware of the elephant in the room. The elephant in the room is, uh, this is Ellen Page, and she is not from these specific communities, and she is indeed a celebrity who is trying to raise awareness for this issue, which is important, but not, you know, directly connected to her, Mm. other than general geography. Um... I think they address the elephant in the room right away, and they just say, "Hi, I'm Ellen Page." Yeah, yeah I was an X Men, and uh, <laughs> and she addresses that, and then aside from a couple of bits of interview footage where she's directly interacting with the people, she's out of there. She narrates, but she mm-hmm. is not centering herself after this opening, which addresses that. Yeah, I'm Ellen Page. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a. If Ellen Page wants to make a documentary about this, there's not a lot better ways she can do it other than to disappear completely and only produce it. Yeah. The question then, which though, she, is she that if done, she yeah. could have, but the question then, and this is a serious issue, which may relate to documentaries, is is it easier to get the documentary seen with, with Ellen Page actually in it a little bit? Mm hmm. The answer to that is probably yes. Probably yeah. it is easier. And that's a that's a legitimate evil mm-hmm. uh, that comes from the movie marketplace right now. Right. You know, there's a decent chance that this movie wouldn't have seen a major release beyond Netflix, be getting the audience it has if Ellen Page didn't do it. Or someone of Ellen Page's, you know, mm-hmm. fame. That's a thing. Yeah. That sucks, uh, but that's a thing. Yeah, the, there's there's actually um, I feel really ambivalent about the sort of the, the white savior complex. When it's a fictional story, there's no excuse. But this is a documentary film. This is really happening. Yes, that we needed Ellen Page's clout to get this story out there. Well, theoretically, and, uh, theoretically, and I do admire that. Uh, so on the one hand, yeah, we're we're hearing a voice from somebody who's not necessarily part of this community, but she does give the people who do live in the community most of the voice, and it's okay for her to have a conscience about this. Yeah. And want to make a change. Uh, I don't think there's arrogance 
at least not in this case. I think if you want, I think if you want to criticize it, there's fodder here. Mm. But I have seen way more cynical documentaries or way more cynical displays of, of philanthropy mm. that are more about self celebration than the actual people involved. And mm. I don't feel like this is one of those cases where. Um, it undermines the enterprise. Mm. I feel like the overall, I got a good message about issues that because I'm not from the, from the region, mm. because I'm a little removed from it, I was only vaguely aware of some of it. And now, I mean, again, there's only so much I can, I can do right now. I can't leave my apartment, but, uh, well, <laughs> yeah. pandemic, but, uh, I am outraged and I think we all should be. And I think, Although the documentary is a little inelegant and maybe in its construct is has some sort of inherent flaws, mm. perhaps because of, again, the elephant in the room, uh, the, the movie did its job. Yeah, yeah. And so I can't really complain about it too hard. Okay. Um, it's nowhere I, I just, near I, as well-crafted like as the we, other documentary. I felt like we week, needed to yeah. address it. Though. I agree. And I think that's, and I think it's bit. a fundamental problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, man, we got the movie anyway, and mm. I think the movie has the potential to do way more good than harm. That's fair. So yeah. there's that. It's a complicated issue, though. Mm. Yeah. I, and I, I think if anyone wants to seriously criticize this film for those reasons, I'm not going to fight you too hard on that because, yeah, okay, mm. it's there. But I don't think it's nearly as bad as it could be. And in the end, I think the movie does a pretty good job of raising awareness of the mm. issue. Um is that it for the releases as well? Uh, no, I saw Uncorked. Oh, that's uh, right. I want to yeah. talk about Uncorked. Um, Please do. Yeah, Uncorked is a, a new drama. It's directed by a, a man named Prentice Penny. Uh, it stars a Mamudu Athi as a young man who is set to uh, take over his father's soul food restaurant. His father is played by the venerable and always excellent Courtney B. Vance. Oh, what a great actor. Love Courtney B. Vance really in great. everything. Uh, yeah, Courtney B. Vance is wonderful. Uh, and... He doesn't want to take over the business because he wants to be a sommelier. He is really interested in wine. And, in fact, he's done so much research just sort of on the side with wine that he has learned that he needs to essentially take – essentially the bar of sommeliers. He has to take this special wine class so he can become – a sommelier master, essentially professional, and he can work in restaurants and stuff and talk to yeah. like wine selections. It's uh, a very specific career goal, but a pretty it, cool. It's pretty cool, and you know, there's a reason why there's a lot of detail in wine. There's a lot of, of things that go into making wine, and uh, and this young man understands a, a lot of it. Um, however, this is told from uh, the director is black, the characters are, are black characters, and. This sort of takes a little bit more of an outsider's approach because sommelier, I mean, let's not to put too fine a point on it. It's mostly white people's doing. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you go on those like wine tour. Uh, I remember, um, I, for, I think the title of the bike was the book was Things White People Like. It started out as a website. <laughs> and uh, one, yeah. of, one of those was like wine tours. And, you know, the. the White. It, it seems like the sort of white person preoccupation. So uh, this young man is a bit of an outsider coming to it at, from this new angle, and his parents, of course, don't quite understand why he's into wine when he is actually already set to inherit soul food, which is actually much more of of his culture. And it takes a long time. 
it's all of the usual kinds of story beats that we get from this type of movie. Dad, I have a new dream. You have to understand me. And the dad has to come to understand. Sure. That his son has a dream. Uh, yeah. uh, his mom is also kind of wants to support them both, but ends up siding with the son and especially has a lot to say when she's diagnosed with cancer. It's, yeah. it's a big thudding kind of story beat. In its construction, this is really, really similar to a lot of really uh, saccharine indies I saw in the 1990s. Mm-hmm. In its execution, however, it's really soulful. It's yeah. very thoughtful. It's actually kind of uh, wonderfully paced, and the acting is all very underplayed. So all of these big thudding moments feel way more genuine. And golly, what a relief. So by the time we come to the big moments where, okay, Dad, I'm going to do this. No, do you really want to do this? It actually feels a lot more cathartic and real and natural. Well, again, uh, it's it's yeah. a good structure. It's just when yeah. the structures get overplayed, mm-hmm. like when structures are relied on so often that a typical person in the audience for that kind of movie recognizes all the story beats. Mm-hmm. Um you know, they stop having the same impact. Yeah, yeah. But once you take, you can take that structure and just put, fill in the blanks with interesting things. And all of a sudden the structure is still as good as ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like a slasher movie structure it's, is as good as ever, as long as you just, the characters are interesting and the yeah, kills are the, good. Yeah, so the, the structure is really, yeah, it's super cliched. Uh, there, but there is the, that wonderful moment where Courtney B. Vance says, this is, this is really your dream, huh? Yep. The next scene, he's helping his son. There you it's go. The, the, it's like Billy yeah. Elliot. Like, like, oh, yeah, I get like, it now. Yeah. Boom, yeah. Billy Elliot is, is – it's the same structure. Billy yeah. Elliot. It's just he wants to be a sommelier. There's a, a wonderful scene at the beginning because he, he moonlights as a guy who works in a wine shop. Mm. And uh, a young woman says, uh, comes in and says, hey, do you have white wine? <laughs> and, yeah, and, and of course, the, this young woman is, is a, you know, to be his, his beloved interest throughout the rest of the film. But you, you kind of see his eyes light up. Oh, I get to school her. Yeah. And, and he's like, okay, listen to hip hop? Okay, this is the Kanye of wines. <laughs> Whereas, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy, like really, really uh, like pre- precocious and there's a lot going on in it and you're not really sure where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. This one, this is like old classic, this is Grandmaster Flash of wines. This right. is good old classic. Well, like he's using hip hop artists to describe the different wines, well, actually, but, but in an intelligent way. I feel like that's I, one of the things I kind of respect about Somalia is not that I'm really into wine. I like wine fine, but... Uh, I feel like what a sommelier represents is mm. someone with an incredibly refined palate. Someone who is who knows yeah, when like, they taste something, where it came from, what's mm. good about it, what's significant, what, uh, when it peaks, like that kind of thing. And I, I actually think about a sommelier the way I think about like a lot of film critics. Mm. Where the idea is, yeah, we all can enjoy a glass of wine. Like I can enjoy this glass of wine without you telling me anything about it. Mm. But it, once you start telling me things about it, things that I don't know because I'm not super into wine, if you can make that relate to me in some way, if you can convey the qualities of this wine in a way that I, a layperson, feel enriched by and now mm. I appreciate it better, or maybe I understand that the wine I had before wasn't as good as this wine, that's great. You have educated <laughs> me and you have refined me yeah. and you have improved my sense of taste so that I have more capacity to enjoy things and understand the things that I enjoy. I feel like that, that that's what film critics do. Yeah. No, in a lot sure, of ways. For sure. Um, and yeah, if, 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 so someone, ha- if someone has like a, a bit more of, 
you sense they have a bit more refined taste, maybe they're worth listening to. Um, yeah. As provided, this, yeah. of course, that they can communicate that exactly. in a way that you can understand as uh, somebody who doesn't have that. I appreciate that Uncorked uh, has a, a good deal of shop talk about the way <sighs> wine, the wine culture works. This sounds like a movie uh, I really enjoy. Yeah, I'm really and, mad and I it, missed this And now. it gets a lot Damn right. Um, now, I'm by no means a wine expert. I know sure. n- Jack and shit about wine. And, well, two uh, things. Two things about wine. Jack and shit. And, <laughs> but I, I did take one wine class once. Okay. So I know a few details uh, that – and of course the teacher said, here's what you see in the movies and this is what's wrong. And so, so I took those with me. Uh, one is in in, uh, in the movies or you know, a friend will say they know a lot about wine and they'll – first of all, they'll swish it around in the glass and say, mm, it has nice legs, which means the drips on the inside of the glass. That's fucking meaningless. Uh, <laughs> Like it, it might speak to the alcohol content, but it has nothing to do with the flavor. Okay. Uh, also, um, wine glasses are shaped such so you can have like the largest surface area across the top. Mm-hmm. You don't fill a wine glass up to the top. That's not a good way to appreciate wine. Yep. You can want a little bit of the odor inside the glass, you mm-hmm. see. Put the nose in. Yeah. yeah. Uh, also, uh, yeah, when they hold it up to the light and sort of like sort of sh- the light shining through it oh yes it has a good color what color is that light you know you're yeah. not you need, to, you need to hold it you, when you're looking at wine you sort of tip it so you can see the thin part and you hold it up against like a white tablecloth and that's the best way to just ah, test the color of a wine okay. so they, that they actually, was fun they did, that. they did that in uncorks they picked up the wine and they held it down to the table rather than up to the light the so. bit I always remember and I have no idea how mm. if this is bullshit or not but I, you ever mm. seen the movie French Kiss I have it's been okay. a while but I saw okay. that it's pretty good Kevin, Kevin Klein is doing an outrageous French accent, but he is funny. Yeah. Um, I just think I have this outrageous accent. Uh, Meg Ryan is an American who's Meg marrying Ryan, a yeah. yeah. Meg Ryan is an American. She's marrying a Canadian. He goes to France and leaves her. She travels to France in order to track him down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now she's stuck there because she's between passports and shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and she ends up stuck with Kevin Klein, who is this, you know. S- Lothario. Oh, yeah, a layabout, just a charming cad. And once um, th- she ends up, she finds out he's like his parents owned a winery, a vineyard, mm. and uh, he, he takes her there and he shows her this project he did as a child. And he has little vials of all the different types of soil or mushrooms or trees mm. that are in this the ground, that are in the, the, mm. the environment. And he says, okay, now take a sip of this wine. Okay, it's pretty good. All right, now uh, smell this, and this, mm. and this. These are all growing in the ground near the wine. Now taste the wine again. Mm. You can taste those things. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that sounds neat. I have no idea if that's true or not, but that's a neat idea. Yeah, yeah I, I, don't, I don't know if that No works. idea. Yeah, it, it stuck I, with I, me, though. I'm it no expert in wine. Theme. I don't even like wine. <laughs> but I, I appreciate that this, this film clearly knows a lot about wine and the way people talk about wine and the way people study about wine and the details they need to know about wine. Mm. And, uh, and, and yeah, the, the, the young lead actor, who's really, really, really great, uh, just... Is it sells all of it, and of course, when Courtney B. Vance shows up, it's a scene with Courtney B. Vance in it, so you're in luck. Okay, mm. um, yeah, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Well, that sounds great, and that's mm. on Netflix. Um, and uh, I'm gonna have to check that one out because that sounds really good. Mm. All right, uh, so uh, let's review these movies on the critically acclaimed scale. Critically acclaimed scale goes from C minus to C plus. The lowest a movie can get is C minus, unless your movie Cats. <laughs> one exception for the movie mm. Cats. Uh, but a C- minus is below average. Mm. It's either just not particularly good or genuinely very bad. Mm. Uh, a C is average. Uh, it's fine, 
certainly there are worse movies out there. If you have a fondness for the genre, you might be extra interested in it, but it just doesn't make much of an impression. Mm. C plus is above average. That's everything from really quite good and we recommend it to genuinely 100% great. Whitney, mm. what is the critically acclaimed scale mm. for uncorked? Uncorked. Um, yeah, for a cliched story, it was really sort of soulful. I really appreciated it. I liked all the the performances. I'll give it a C plus. Nice. I think you should. I think you should see that one. Okay, uh, there is something in the water. Uh, oh. It is not a particularly nuanced documentary, but it is very efficient. It mm. raises our awareness of an issue, and on that level, I have to admit, it basically works. It's mm. not amazing. So I'm going to give it a C. If you well, like, it, like documentaries and you find that topic mm-hmm. of interest or you don't know why that topic should be of interest, you'll be in and out in mm-hmm. 70 minutes. You'll learn something. There you go. I'm, I'm torn on there's something in the water because I think this, the topic is fascinating. Mm-hmm. But I think it's – as a film, I think it kind of stinks. Okay. Uh, so like if, if I were – It's you, tricky because it's a documentary. Yeah, it's like – What part matters the most? Exactly. So I think it communicates its point very well, but I think it's also not very interesting. And if it's not very interesting, it's not going to get its point across very well. So okay. like it, it's like the highest possible C minus maybe. Okay. You know? well, that's worth things to do. Yeah. Uh, Crip Camp, C+. Plus, C one plus of the best films sure. I've seen all year. Yeah, it is really, really terrific. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the year's only a few months old. It's too early to say it's one of the best films of the year. But uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it was. It's really good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah. And yeah, Netflix films are up for Academy Awards. Uh, Especially who, the documentaries. Who, who's to say what you know the awards are going to look like this year? Who just the because there's a, there's this big gap in the middle of the year, mm-hmm. maybe the whole year. So we'll. Yeah. Uh, We'll see, but uh, yeah, I think this one will definitely be on on people's lips come award time. Be ahead of the game. Oh, uh, just we should clarify where, what streaming services these are. Oh, on. Yeah, so that, far, that everything was... we've talked about is on Netflix. Yeah, uh, the only one that's not on Netflix is Daniel Isn't Real. That's on Shutter. And um, uh... oh, real real fast, because okay. I'm doing it in order. Uh, yeah. The Decline mm-hmm. uh, is a perfectly efficient thriller, just never super remarkable. Rock solid C, All just right. well crafted, but not amazing. Uh, and then, yeah, and then uh, Daniel Isn't Real, which is on Shudder. Uh, that is a big old C+. I have some issues with the ending, but it doesn't hurt my overall enthusiasm yeah. of the film. What a great horror I, I, I do love that uh, the, these sort of angles that a lot of recent straight-to-streaming films, in many cases, uh, horror films have been taking. Mm. Uh, a lot of people have been going around the world and finding these films and putting them on Shutter so the American audiences can see them. That's great. And they're all great. <laughs> well, they're not all great, but you know, they're, no, they're, not all great, but there's a lot of them. There's aren't. a, they're being, they seem to be more carefully curated and a lot of more interesting work is coming out of these, these corners yeah. of the, of the world. Yeah. In the last two and, weeks, we've had two really, really mm-hmm. good thought provoking, uh, exciting horror thrillers on streaming. And, so. and Elijah Wood may go down as one of the most important horror producers, uh, of his generation, maybe let's, even more so than he's an actor. Let's uh, see, well, but we'll see. see. We'll see. We'll see how his, his career yeah. continues to evolve. But I think he's become just a fascinating producer of films, mm-hmm. and uh, this is just another one of his wonderfully bonkers uh, horror projects. And there are other producers as well. We want to make sure they all get credit. But it, they, it, it, they all get credit. But Elijah if, Wood's if, name is on a lot of good stuff right now. Uh, yeah, the, that, if if he's the producer, the executive producer on a horror movie, you, you know you're going to see something kind of interesting. That's probably true. I, I hope he's like this generation's Fessenden. That's not bad. Well, yeah. we, we still have this generation's That's Fessenden. True, he's, he's still around. He's not. He, I mean, he's sort of slowed down. But yeah, he, 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 he was well, yeah the one who was supporting a lot of indie horror films right. for the longest time. All right, moving on to the critically acclaimed streaming club. Uh, this is the part of the uh, podcast where we talk about classic movies. 
mm-hmm. or at the very least pre-existing movies of note, uh, that either Whitney or I or both have not seen. Uh, every film critic has gaps. They oh, don't yeah. always like advertising them, but if you look hard enough, you'll find one or both of us. There's quite a few films that are notable that we just haven't seen yet. Maybe mm-hmm. we're saving them for a special occasion. Maybe we just never got around to it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we're just waiting for the right day. So uh, all of the options for this week's critically acclaimed streaming club were classic comedies that are currently available for no additional charge on Amazon Prime. Yeah. So if, um, if you have an Amazon Prime membership, it's yeah, a subscription. That is, it's yeah. it's free. Yeah. Uh, it comes with the subscription. I'm trying to remember what our other options were. You picked My Man Godfrey. That's right. Um, I haven't, haven't seen My Man Godfrey. Uh, I, I I think I picked Moonstruck. Um, but I, I picked Moonstruck as well. Did you pick Moonstruck? Yeah. Okay. No, you, you you picked two sports comedies. No, no, that was last time. Oh, was it? Oh, last yeah. time I picked like the longest yard. <laughs> okay. Uh, and the natural. Hold on. Let me see if I can find where I where I wrote these things down. What were the what were the ones that lost? I don't even remember yeah. anymore, and we're just going to move on. So uh, in any case, it was Moonstruck. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Moonstruck is an Oscar-winning 1987 romantic comedy starring Cher, Nicolas Cage, Olympia Dukakis, Danny Aiello, uh, Vincent Gardini, yeah, yeah, and John Mahoney. Really, really excellent cast. Uh, directed by Norman Jewison. Uh, an excellent and uh, really varied filmmaker whose was, filmography includes everything from he did Moonstruck, he did mm-hmm. Fiddler on the Roof. He's like Lumet, you know, yeah. he just dabbled in everything. He did In the Heat of the Night. He did the uh, the fantasy kids movie Bogus. He did Bogus? He did Bogus. Oh, wow. Okay. He did Rollerball. He did the Thomas Crown Affair. He did the Cincinnati the, the Kid. The Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. He has these got are all, a, yeah, long, long. These are all career. significant films. Not every one of them is a timeless classic, but mm. you gave him anything in any genre, and he could do it. Yeah, yeah. And arguably, his most beloved films are In the Heat of the Night and Moonstruck. Moonstruck is a romantic comedy uh, about the Italian American community in New York City. Brooklyn, yeah. Uh, Cher plays uh, a... She's 37 or 38? 37. She's a 37-year-old accountant. Mm -hmm. She'd been married before. Her husband is hit by a bus. uh, And now she feels like she's romantically cursed. She's been dating Danny Aiello, uh, who is a nice enough guy. Mm -hmm. And he asks her to marry him. And she says, sure. Much much older than she is. Yeah. And uh, she says, sure. And then she goes home and tells her parents, and her dad's like, meh. Hmm. And Olympia Dukakis is her mom, and she's just like, do you love him? And Sarah says, no. And Olympia Dukakis says, good. (laughs) It's a a better foundation, because love is chaotic and ruins everything. Hmm. And that's kind of the theme, is sensible choices versus passionate choices. What's the best decision to make for your life? And the story really kicks off when Danny Aiello has to go to Sicily because his mother is dying. And he says, while I'm in Sicily, I want you to do one thing for me. Invite, Re- invite my brother to the wedding. Yeah, my younger brother. We're, we mm. haven't spoken in five years. He won't speak to me. I would like you to invite him to the wedding. Much, much younger brother. He's like 18 <laughs> yeah. years younger than Danny Aiello, which is not outside the realm of possibility, yeah. but it's a bit extreme. Yeah. Um, he is a baker. He also lives in town. And Cher goes to see him, and he is played... By Nicolas Cage with a wooden hand, <laughs> and Nicolas Cage steps into the mo- steps 
into his own movie. Yeah. Uh, like, he, he's completely bonkers off the wall. Uh, he, I looking at the script and the script was written by John Patrick Shanley he won an Oscar for it and um, John Patrick Shanley great writer great great writer yeah Um, uh, yeah, he's done he did uh, Doubt as well Mm -hmm. I think that's his most recent Oscar did he do Joe versus the Volcano he did yeah Uh, like interesting varied career he also wrote Congo well that that was clearly (laughs) was clearly a writer for hire he also wrote um, We're Back a dinosaur story so he's had an interesting career he sure has Uh, on on the on Red Letter Media they unearthed this recent like really horrible kids movie with Joe Pantaleano called Robot in the Family no memory of that Uh, no nobody has any memory of this thing it's just one of those lost B films and they they, it's it's like one of the worst things you've ever seen and I say that without hyperbole it's just like chattery awful piece of crap one of the actors who played the robot in that movie was named John Shanley and according oh. to IMDB it's John Patrick Shanley but IMDB isn't always necessarily accurate it probably That's... got a little wires crossed there's probably an actor named that, John Shanley that happens a lot but it fits neatly into John Patrick <laughs> Shanley's career like he wasn't doing anything else at that time so I like to think that he was also in Robot in the Family. But anyway. Anyway, before uh, this, we've had this kind of like it, it, oh, slightly overwritten, like the dialogue really sparkles. Everyone's mm-hmm. got great one-liners. Yeah. Um, and it's it's really kind of a, a good exploration in a really sort of light way of, of a certain ethnic group in a certain place of the world. It's mm-hmm. uh, called it, I even called it at the time just a, a standard boilerplate ethnic comedy. Uh, mm-hmm. It's kind of exploring the ins and outs of a, a group of people or an ethnicity that isn't explored necessarily in film a lot. Yeah, which in this, is uh, in this the case, working it's, class yeah, Italian American. Working class Italians in Brooklyn, and yeah, they the way they're they're sort of are always sniping at each other, always very funny. They're played by witty, intelligent people. Uh, Olympia Dukakis is freaking awesome in this movie. Mm-hmm. I love Olympia Dukakis in this movie. Um, Won an Oscar for it, and. Then in comes Nicolas Cage out of a different movie. It doesn't quite work for me. Well, I, now he—that is—he doesn't work for me. The the role he plays is fine. Uh, he and uh, Cher uh, wants to not just invite him to the wedding, but also he when he first introduces himself, he just sort of rants about how he and his brother don't talk anymore and how his brother is responsible for him losing his hand and a meat and his fiance and his fiance all in the same day because of a meat grinding accident. Well, not the same day. He loses, loses his hand and then he loses his fiance. Because of that. And, and he blames his brother for all of this and there's been bad blood and she says this is all – Cher says that's all BS. That's your fault. And, you know, Nicolas Cage is screaming and he's got the wild hair and I lost my hand. <laughs> he's so fucking funny. Uh, and, Sorry. He's really funny. And she uh, in, in sort of takes it upon her, herself to kind of cut through all his bullshit. And, of course – and it's famously advertised – uh, they end up going back to his place. They have a little bit of wine. They begin to talk, and they realize that they're really kind of powerfully attracted to each other, and they have an affair. Like, uh, and this is yeah. all like within an hour of meeting. Like, it's really passionate, yeah. really sudden mm. for both of them. And she has been desperately trying to play it safe, mm. like ever since her husband died. She's been trying to be very responsible. Mm. She's. I think it's interesting. This is a movie about an accountant. <laughs> like you don't see a lot of movies about accountants that aren't about like accountants trying to rip off the mob. You know, this uh-huh. is just she's an accountant. She works for various local businesses in town. Mm. She leads a very controlled life. And when she runs into Nicolas Cage, the reason why I think it is significant that Nicolas Cage feels like he's coming from another movie. And I want to talk mm. about that because that's an interesting observation. 
he completely upends every plan she had for mm-hmm. her day. Like, even when she calls him, and we don't even see Nicolas Cage's face, mm-hmm. he, she's just like, yeah, I'm calling on behalf of your brother. And he's just like, I can't remember what, the, what his line is. It's like, some some wrongs can never be made right. And he just slams it on the phone, and he's mm-hmm. just like, what the fuck? <laughs> when she goes to see him, mm-hmm. she goes to his bakery. And it's his bakery, by the way. She goes to his bakery, and... He is downstairs stoking the fires with shovels full of coal. Mm. And he is glistening in coal and sweat. And Nicolas Cage is he's a good-looking man at this point in his career. I mean, it's mm. not that he's a bad-looking man now, but he was young and mm. very virile. And he had a full head of hair. And so, yeah, this is... Prime Cage. Not, not, so long at, not so far after Valley Girl that yeah. you can't still see him as this like, romantically... Yeah, yeah, Prime Cage. Mm. Nicolas Cage specifically has, has apparently specifically mm. said that he based his performance in that basement scene on the movie Metropolis. <laughs> he wanted to, and they thought it was a good choice. idea, and I think it's a fascinating choice, and I love this choice. In his world, mm. he is not part of this fun John Patrick Shanley kind of sparkling uh, yeah, he's, uh, Philadelphia he's, story kind of dialogue. He, he's Hephaestus is he, what he is. He and is living a fucking Greek tragedy mm. in which his brother, apparently, he even admits it's probably by accident, but like his brother betrayed him and destroyed his life and he will never get over it. He is living this life of extreme emotion and passion and regret. And it's no, it's no surprise that he says the only thing he truly loves until he met Cher, mm. is the opera. <laughs> like, that's how he sees his life. Mm. Really big. Nah, Even yeah. though he's just a fucking baker in he's Brooklyn. A, he's a baker in Brooklyn. Uh, he overplays it. He's very funny. I think that the script called for somebody who is a little bit more of, uh, a, little bit more of a meathead. And you will forgive me for this, because I, I will never, ever say this phrase again. But this movie needed Stallone. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel Actually, like Stallone would have been good. I feel like because first of all, well, I mean, Nicolas Cage is Italian, Stallone's Italian. They, yeah. they, they they fit the roles fine, but yeah, I feel like Stallone really had already zero. He, maybe he was a little too old for the role at this point, but he well, also zeroed like zeroed the third in. lead kind of. Yeah, like, and he was too big a star in the late eighties yeah, at that point. But yeah, he had already zeroed in on a certain kind of mookish character that he played in a lot of his movies. Man, look at Rhinestone. Yeah, sometimes uh, he was a bit of a, you know, like a tough guy. Sometimes he was a, a little bit of a sweetheart, but. He always played yeah. a, a really good kind of muscly Italian dude. Exactly, a yeah. big muscly Italian dude. And I feel like a big kind of puppy dog of a muscly Italian dude mm-hmm. is what the script called for. Whereas Nicolas Cage was playing it like this weird sort of passionate maniac. So okay. I had a lot of trouble figuring out why this really kind of down to earth, well spoken, incredibly intelligent woman. Would just sort of fall into bed with this guy. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, come back at you with two things. One is a personal opinion. Mm-hmm. The other, which is actually a fact of the production, I want to get your opinion on that. All right. Uh, personal opinion. Okay. I buy it. Mm-hmm. I do because he is so far afield of. We see her co- talk to everyone in the community, and we see her like talk to like people who work at the local deli. She who knows, are very she old knows and, everybody's yeah, character, and she yeah. knows that people who are just growing old together, and they're very sweet and they're very secure. And then all of a sudden, she's in a completely different universe with this guy. Mm-hmm. And that's hypnotic to her. And I buy that. 
Mm. At least, especially in a moment, I buy it. Here's the thing I think is interesting because you think like, okay, if you if you had your druthers, the person you would think to cast Sylvester Stallone. All right. Doing a little bit of research on this, apparently, this role was down to two people. Oh no, I I, I read okay. this. Yeah, so. This role was down to Nicolas Cage, who Cher fought tooth and nail for. Cher thought he was perfect for it. Mm. And Peter Gallagher. Which would have been a very different movie. I don't think Peter Gallagher works at all. No, I can't imagine. Not. He's a good he, actor, but I can't imagine him doing this passionate he's, character. He, he's well. a, little, a little bit too much of a charmer. You know? yeah. he's, he's a good-looking guy. Uh, he, yeah. He's... He might have been fine in the Danny Aiello role. Yeah, I, I can see that. I, I wouldn't have done that because I love Danny Aiello. I think he's wonderful in this movie. He's he played, he played the, the proposal scene right at the beginning where he just sort of botches everything and doesn't know how to do it. And she has it's to so, tell him how to propose. He was like, you got to get down on your – got to get so down wonderful. on one knee. That's like, yeah. I'll ruin my suit. And she's just yeah. like, what, I'm not worth a suit to you? And he's like, okay, fine. And then you hear see a guy mm-hmm. like across the restaurant going, hey, he's going to ruin that suit. Yeah. <laughs> it's so fucking funny. He's like, and where's the ring? Oh, I didn't get a ring. Well, they, give me, give, give me, me a pinky ring. I like this pinky ring. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's it, it's really wonderful. Mm-hmm. I love the the flip dialogue. I yeah. love the way the characters all kind of know each other in a very fundamental way. Yeah, uh, and Cher, of course, is pretty brilliant in this She's movie. Really good She's really, this. really good. Uh, yeah. But again, the only thing I don't buy is kind of her transformation, or sort of like com- coming out of her chrysalis. Oh no, now she looks more like Cher. It's, I, it's, it's this is kind of those... tough to buy. It's like okay. she's, she's hardly a dowdy person at the beginning. No, she's fine. She's she she's she's got gray in her hair, uh-huh. and she's not like dressed. To make herself look particularly nice. Well, she's but not she looks gla- really nice. She's not glammed up. She looks like Cher. She looks really nice. She looks like Cher yeah. in the 1980s. It's a good look for anybody. <laughs> but, like, I, I like... I want to make... This is something that I think can be really problematic in a story like this, which is when you have a, a character, particularly a lead character, hmm. in a romantic movie, and their love interest doesn't notice them until they get made up. Hmm. Nicolas Cage falls in love with her before she gets made up. He is passionately in love with her before she even touches her hair. Hmm. That's good. I think that sells his affection, you believe, by that it's really genuine. And that her... And what happens is he says he wants... He's in love with her. Hmm. They've known each other for less than a day. And she slaps him and says, snap out of it. Which is actually good advice at this point. Hmm. It's very practical. We we slept together... Hmm. We probably shouldn't have. Let's, <laughs> let's just put it in the past and pretend this never happened and we'll move on. She's being very practical. He's deeply in love with her. And what he says is, the only way I will put this to bed and not tell you my brother and stay out of the wedding and all that mm. jazz is if you come to the opera with me tonight. Mm. I only love two things in this world. You and the opera. I just want to enjoy them both at the same time. And what it's they, a very romantic thing to say. And what do they say? Of course, they see Puccini. Yeah, they say, of course, they, they do. They it's, see La Boheme because it's the only opera anybody knows. It's uh, fine. And, but like, but the whole point is that she doesn't necessarily just get made up for him. Hmm. She's getting made up for the opera. When we see her with Danny Aiello, and we see that he's very sweet and he's very likable and he's a nice guy, but he doesn't have a romantic bone in his body. No, here. There's a romantic guy who wants to take someone to the opera. She wants to dress up for the opera. So this uh, is she, her making the most out of a moment. Yeah, and I, I buy that. I buy I, her getting her hair done. I buy I, uh, her getting nice shoes. 
Cher gives such an assured performance, and the character is so assured, that I didn't really completely buy the fact that she needed to change all that much. She needed Mm. to figure out what she wanted. Yes. But it wasn't a matter of fundamentally changing anything about herself. I feel like she had already kind of arrived. Eh, kind of. She was was already wise. She knew the world, and she knew herself pretty well. But did she? And it wasn't about her sort of coming to these sort of realizations. No, it's about how... It was about how uh, her perceptions of marriage and romance were way messier than she had assumed. Yeah. And that being moonstruck uh, is perhaps something a, a bit of... A bit of a blessing and a bit of a curse. Uh, yeah. Now we learn, uh, and we haven't even touched on the B plot yet. No, 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 because that, I think the A uh, plot's really strong. But yeah, the A plot's really strong, but I think it requires the B plot to give it a comment. And we learn that uh, her father, who's played by Vincent Gardenia, is stepping out. Uh, we see he's a plumber. He's become very wealthy, sort of. Uh, talking people like ups- he's very good at upselling plumbing mm-hmm. packages to people. Yeah. So he's he's become very wealthy, and uh, he is also a very charming guy. And he's he has a mistress that he's seeing on the side mm-hmm. that uh, Olympia Dukakis may or may not know about. And his, his sort of insistence on on cheating and his sort of his habits of cheating and uh when he's finally caught cheating kind of cast a dark pall over all of the institutions of marriage because yeah. we understand that Cher's parents don't have a very good marriage well, here's, because here's, he's not a very good husband. We learn however yeah. that she happens to be an incredible wife. Yeah, she's And great. there's a really wonderful uh series of scenes with John Mahoney mm-hmm. who uh is a, a local customer at the local diner and he's in there a lot with his no, much younger it's mistresses. It's not a diner. It's an Italian, Italian restaurant, restaurant and he's constantly taking younger his mistresses much younger there, yeah. mistresses there and every single time he, he we see him there, mm. he gets dumped. But yeah, some other yeah. Young, like 18-year-old mistress. So while and, Olympia Dukakis is convinced that her mm. husband is cheating on her, she goes out to eat while he's... They're every, both her daughter and her husband are on dates at the opera and mm. they don't know that they're there together at the same time. Olympia Dukakis has nowhere to go so she goes to an Italian restaurant. Everyone knows her. She sees John Mahoney get dumped and they end up having... A uh-huh. very interesting, spirited conversation about why men cheat and why men mm-hmm. look for younger women, mm-hmm. in which John Mahoney is very frank, but doesn't actually make himself look very good. He doesn't make himself look very good, but you know he's he's very honest about his his need to sort of hurt others and hurt himself constantly. And well, I mean, not hurt go- like in like a painful kind no, of way, just self-destructive. Just, yeah, yeah. He's, uh, the, the way he's just sort of serially cheats and, you know, breaks his own heart and breaks the hearts of others and just, yeah. just a complete cad. Yeah. Uh, he's just very honest about the fact that he is a cad. This is just sort of his character. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Mahoney is is great at playing that role. It's yeah. a really juicy role, in fact. And You probably know a- John Mahoney from Frasier. It's uh, worth noting, he didn't get into acting until much later in his life. This was one of his breakthroughs out roles <laughs> and, and he's already great, like yeah. in his 40s at least mm-hmm. like it's so just interesting it's never too late and no, uh, never is. and yeah they have this really wonderful conversation on the way home where uh, he finds that being frank with olympia dukakis sort of opens up his heart and of course he says well why don't we have an affair this, olympia this dukakis be, says no thanks says, yeah no thanks it's, I'm it's, married. Really, it's really cold can i come inside no i don't i don't do that yeah and he tries I, a couple i'm not of times. i'm not like you and it he does, doesn't force it but he lets her know yeah. that no seriously i'd be very interested like well, and, no i'm good and it reveals that there's this deep schism between the men and the women in this universe in mm-hmm. this movie and i feel like 
you know, the, the romance between uh, Cher and Danny Aiello is is very forced. They're just sort of going through the motions. They they yeah. don't really love each other, but they feel like this is kind of an appropriate There's thing to do. Yeah. Uh, the marriage between uh, Vincent Gardenia and Olympia Dukakis is pretty sour. Uh, but I and feel like the, romo- the romance between Cher and yeah. Nicolas Cage is actually really kind of impulsive and hurtful in a lot of well, ways. Well, here, here's I think you're missing the mm. the big parallel here, mm. which is we find out from uh, uh, extended family over a dinner early in the movie mm. that uh, uh, Vincent Gardenia was so in love with Olympia Dukakis when they were very young mm. that. The moon got brighter. Mm-hmm. Like a guy's like, he, yeah, he was he was seducing my sister. He was so in love with her. One night I woke up, the moon was so bright. It was like someone was shining a spotlight in my eyes. I've never seen a moon like that. Mm-hmm. And then I looked down, and it was him. Mm-hmm. And he was so in love, he made the moon brighter. And then, so their marriage mm-hmm. was based not on responsibility, mm-hmm. rational thought, logic. It was based on passion. Okay. Cher, when she sleeps with Nicolas Cage, the moon gets that bright again. It's a little mm. bit of fantastical realism. Yeah. Um, and uh, w- here's the thing. So that sounds like the most romantic thing in the world, right? Yeah, except now he's cheating on her. It's decades down the line, but these are, mm. you know, I- I- Italians are in it for the long haul. <laughs> you know, we're going to get married. We're going to stick around. You know, the Catholic Church goes back thousands of years at this point. Like, we're we're in it. So... Yeah, so this is actually like a legitimate concern of hers because when her dad, when she goes to the opera with Nicolas Cage, and it's actually very romantic mm. and very sweet. She's very moved by the opera. She's very moved yeah. by the opera. She's very moved by being with a person who is so passionate. And then while she's at the opera, she runs into her father cheating on her mother. Mm. And she makes this connection that, oh, that's what happens when you build a relationship on passion and not responsible thought. Mm. So she tries to break it off with Nicolas Cage. That I never said we'd go to bed together. That was it. That was the end of it. We said the opera. It's done. And he gives this big passionate speech. It's a really great speech. About how we are not meant to be rational and perfect. We're mm. not the moon. We're not the stars. We are messy human beings mm. who make mistakes and screw things up. But all we really have is this moment. And at the moment, this feels right. Mm. And it's very romantic. And it builds to the next morning when uh, everything comes to head on this amazing breakfast. It's very theatrical. And, and John, pa- John Patrick Shanley worked in theater a lot, so it, it makes yeah. sense. But yeah, it feels like you know just all of the characters come together and everything's revealed. Yeah. And, and it's this big and, – and it turns yeah. out I did love you, but I can't love you, et cetera, et cetera. Danny Aiello um, comes home from mm. Sicily. And he says, "It's well, he says, like, he I, says it's a miracle. My my mother is alive and she's she, healthier than she, she's ever been. She pulled through, <laughs> and that means I can't marry you because I was only going to marry you to say that to my mom on her deathbed. Yeah. And now that she's pulled through, well, I can't. I don't want to marry you now. And, I, it's and, weird. And, and, and Cher thought... just says, "Oh, thank fuck, because I was actually cheating on you." And well, she doesn't actually say that, but they, yeah. they figure it out. And um, yeah, and then Nicholas Cage is there, and it's really awkward. And then he asks for Danny Aiello's pinky ring so he can ask Cher to marry him right then and there. It's, it's, That's funny. It, it's sweet. It's kind of farcical. It does. And, you know, it is a comedy film. Everything's very. Low. We're talking about sort of the heftier stuff, but I think overall, this I don't find this to be a particularly romantic film. Yeah. I think it's actually very bitter about romance, mm-hmm. and uh, I. I that's why I say that a lot of these romances 
you know, they start in a messy place, but they don't point towards something really kind of grand or happily ever after. Everything mm-hmm. is going to be messy heading forward. And yeah, they get married at the end and that's a satisfying ending. Uh, I still don't think they're necessarily a very good couple. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I think I, that's fair. I, yeah. But I think that's also kind of the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm watching this movie. One of the things that we expect from romantic comedies is a certain structure. Mm-hmm. That structure was firmly codified and it happened one night in the mid 1930s mm-hmm. and has barely changed since. <laughs> like it's moved a hair in, in yeah, one like, direction. Yeah, we, we play with it yeah. now and then, but the basic structure is more or less the same in every mainstream romantic comedy. Mm. So, and, and the reason is because it works. Like it's a, it's a very functional storyline. You put in different characters, different situations. Mm. You can gussy it up. It's mm. always satisfying. It's it's it works. Moonstruck is not that. Mm. Moonstruck is only a romantic comedy because there's technically romance in it and it's funny. Like this is actually not a great date movie. <laughs> because you see yeah. So, because yeah there's the passion hmm. of Cher and Nicolas Cage and I guess your mileage might vary on that I like them Whitney didn't quite buy it mm-hmm. fair but you get so much context of relationships we talk a lot about mm-hmm. how a lot of romance stories end with people getting married and the implication is and they'll be fine mm-hmm. Moonstruck we're seeing where the marriage is going Mm. Through shares the story of Cher's parents, mm. we see that this marriage, based on passion, and based on passionate people making mistakes, well, passionate people will probably make mistakes their whole lives, and that those mistakes can really hurt. Mm. And we see Olympia Dukakis be more responsible than her husband, and we see her husband act out on some foolish things. Mm. That's probably what's going to happen to Cher and Nicolas Cage. Mm. That's not really romantic. It might be real. It might not be real. It might be kind of cynical. But, yeah, I love that this movie explores all of these characters and all of these different facets of their relationships. Mm. I love the writing. The, the dialogue. <laughs> the, the, this is one of those the dialogue movies the where car- every yeah. line of dialogue is great. It's really, really just scintillatingly written. Um it, this may be a really weird comment to make, but this is a really 80s movie. Sure. They don't make sort of this type of high-minded relationship drama in this way anymore. Yeah. It's yeah, it's really, really sort of a product of its time. A lot of people say 80s movies. It's like, oh, back to the future. No, Moonstruck, I think, is a little bit more exemplary of the way movies were being made in the late 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, just in terms well, of its... This is a movie... In terms of its like themes and its production value. Well, I think it's interesting because the 80s was the last decade where I felt there was this very definite schism in terms of successful movies. Mm. Where not every successful, popular movie was made for teens and 20-somethings. Well, and they, this they, is they, a they didn't all belong to the same genre either. Yeah, yeah There were a lot of popular comedies and dramas still. Yeah. Uh, this is a comedy which is more drama than comedy a lot of the time. About a, people in their in their in their fifties and sixties, and people in their thirties, and it was a huge hit. It was a huge hit. It won a bunch. It won uh, three Oscars. It won best original screenplay, best actress, best supporting actress. It was nominated for several other awards. Um, it's a really fun watch. I want to talk about it just real fast, just because I fucking love this moment. Mm. It's my favorite moment in the whole movie. It has nothing to do with anything really. It's when Cher sees Danny Aiello off at the airport. Uh huh. He goes off to Sicily, and he says, when I get back, we'll get married in a month. And she's watching the plane go, and she's sitting next to an old Italian lady. 
And the Italian lady says, you know someone on that plane? Cher says, yeah, I do. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, my, my fiancé is on that plane. And the old time lady says, I put a curse on that plane. <laughs> my sister is on that plane. And years ago, she stole the man I loved. And I, today, this week, I found out that she did it out of spite. I cursed that plane. <laughs> Something bad will happen to that plane. And it has nothing to do with anything. And it's just such a great, fucking hilarious moment. God. This, again, I, I think one of the great measures of great screenplay. Mm. Not every great screenplay does this, but every screenplay that does this, as far as I'm concerned, is probably a great screenplay. Mm. Every character, no matter how small their role, is full. <laughs> every character, everyone who has one line of dialogue in this thing is mm. great. There's this character who works at Nicolas Cage's bakery, who I thought was going to be a big deal. She's in it for two scenes. When Cher goes to see Nicolas Cage, she's the lady who's working the counter. When Cher says she wants to see Nicolas Cage, she's instantly suspicious. Mm -hmm. And then when she takes her down to the bellows mm -hmm. to meet Nicolas Cage, Nicolas Cage has this incredible silent movie, crazy performance. <laughs> and he's talking about his tragic life. And we keep cutting back to this lady who we will never see again. And she <laughs> is, well, everyone, well, Cher is just going, what the fuck is going on? This lady, who's probably heard this speech every day for the last five years, mm -hmm. is going, yeah. And you know that she's deeply in love with Nicholas Cage. <laughs> and it's just a, a, a ton of character in like four lines of dialogue mm -hmm. and a bunch of reaction shots. What a great attention to detail. Yeah, yeah. What a wonderful sense of place this movie has. Great dialogue this movie has. But yeah, there's a bitterness here. Mm -hmm. That honestly could ruin an evening if you're yeah, if you're a sensitive yeah. type. Like again, <laughs> I would not recommend this as a night in with a glass of wine mm -hmm. and are we gonna get frisky tonight? Kind of romantic comedy. <laughs> exactly. Like, no, this is this is a thinker, this is gonna make you have a it's, long conversation. Yeah, it's it, it it's it it really pulls off bittersweet, which is difficult to do. Very difficult. Uh, how it, it actually has some pretty negative things to say, but it's light and enjoyable throughout. And it's not purely negative that's the thing no, no there no, are just, nice elements too I, th I think a lot of the messaging is uh, a, a little bit sour but yeah. i think it's a, an earned adult sourness it comes from knowledge rather than just like hipster yeah. nihilism and i don't even agree with a lot of the ideas this movie seems to espouse about mm -hmm. uh, relationships love marriage responsibility i actually think some of the things that the movie falls mm -hmm. down on are mm -hmm. uh, yeah cynical irresponsible mm -hmm. even yeah. But I do believe that the people in the movie believe it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this came out the same year as Fatal Attraction, which was mm -hmm. also nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, this is a film very much about infidelity, and Fatal Attraction is also mm -hmm. a film about infidelity. I wanted to get your line on this. Was there something that happened? <laughs> like in – like. In pop media, like was this like a reaction to the royal wedding, like the royal oh, marriage falling I don't apart? Think so. Just was I know divorce rates were sort of. I think up, it's good. But I think it keys into divorce. Yeah, divorce was sort of going up. Like Kramer versus Kramer came out in the late seventies, mm -hmm. so these things had been on sort of the public's mind for I a mean, while. I, listen, I I was young when this came out, as were you. Mm -hmm. uh, you're a little older than I am, but we were still kids when this came out, and um, I didn't have my finger on the pulse of what married people were thinking at the time. Yeah. So I'm going to freely admit that. I'm wondering what was what was the conversation about marriage in sort of the American consciousness that it was making movies like this. I think there was a, I think there was a lot of cynicism about marriage. I mm. think there was uh, we were seeing that the institution of marriage, which had been 
Uh, we must protect the institution of marriage at all costs for generation after generation. And now divorce is becoming increasingly socially acceptable. Look at films like Kramer versus Kramer. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were dealing with, you know, real fallout from that, but also real possibilities from that. And we were starting to look at what goes into mm-hmm. a relationship failing. Um, you know, men had been cheating on their wives and vice versa for forever. Mm. Um, but I think when Fatal Attraction came along, Michael Douglas kind of deserves what he gets. Mm. He doesn't respect his wife. He doesn't respect the woman he's having an affair with. He mm. is only in it for himself. That's all he cares about. Mm. Fatal Attraction was about turning that kind of casual sexism and misogyny on its head and turning it against that guy and hopefully Mm. teaching him a valuable lesson. I don't know if Moonstruck is really as weaponized as Fatal Attraction is. Fatal Attraction is trying to, is a cautionary tale. Fatal Attraction is a thriller and Moonstruck is a comedy, but I think that these are both films that presume that infidelity is sort of a natural state. Well, I think what we're dealing with isn't so much infidelity in a vacuum. I think what we're doing is we are looking at different facets of American life. In the case of Fatal Attraction, upper-class yuppie. In the case of Moonstruck, uh, working-class Italian-American. And we are exploring sort of things that we take for granted Mm. about them. And approaching them from different angles. So Italian-Americans are considered, you know, lots of tradition, lots of family values. And we see that that's not necessarily the case. And maybe there's some hypocrisy involved. And that's something that Moonstruck explores. And in Fatal Attraction, we deal with, you know, uh, was it Ann Archer in uh, uh, Fatal Attraction plays his wife? Oh, God. I barely Hold remember. On, remember. Uh, it was... Mm. Actually, I don't know. Um, I thought it was. Um it was Ann Archer. Yeah. Ann Archer Ann plays Archer. his wife. Um, There's a- but like we see Michael Douglas and Ann Archer, like perfect American couple. Yeah. Rich, attractive, not a care in the world, and still he's gonna fuck that up. Mm. There's a there's a bit that Olympia Dukakis asks everybody that she talks to in this movie when she finds out her husband's cheating. Mm. Why do men cheat? Why do men seek affection from younger women as they get older? And she has a theory that men are afraid of dying. This is a way of mm-hmm. reclaiming their youth. And John Mahoney has a bunch of highfalutin ideas about how it, when he sees himself in the eyes of a younger woman, he sees the man he could be. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Danny, she talks to Danny Aiello, and he's just like, I don't know, I guess we're afraid of dying. And she's like, thank you. <laughs> just say, for finally saying that. And then her husband comes in and is, after going to the opera with his mistress. And it's like, okay, I'm home. I'm going to bed. And Olympia Dukakis says, hey, come in here. Mm. You're going to die and there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> Thanks. I'm going to bed. <laughs> and, and yeah, the, the, the climax between those two, two, two characters is really, really yeah. great. But I, th- I, I think what we're doing is exploding like familial and romantic relationships yeah, no, that had previously I, been taken for granted. No, I understand that's what's happening. I was I just wondering what was happening culturally that sparked so many films so rapidly. Um there's a really great uh, to go off on fatal attraction for a minute. If you look up the episode of the Canon uh, with Amy Nicholson, oh, yeah. she and Heather Matarazzo talk about fatal attraction uh, from the, essentially uh, the Glenn Close and the wife's perspectives. Yeah, they don't give a damn about what Michael Douglas, yeah, Douglas thinks about that, that movie. He's, he's so, kind of the villain in some way. Like that is that is clearly a film written and made by men because yep. it's very much a male sexual fantasy. So also, it it's really, a remake. People it was really that. fantastic to hear Amy Nicholson and Heather Matarazzo. So a gay woman talk about 
the female perspective on fatal attraction and how it actually works very much as a feminist parable. Mm-hmm. How, you know, how the Glenn Close character isn't just this sort of like crazy harridan with a knife that she's actually has a much more complex emotional inner life. And the film actually gives her a lot of, have you seen the alternate ending of fatal attraction? Like the original downbeat one that they use rather than the big crazy fight. No, I only saw the big crazy fight. Uh, if you ever get a chance, watch the original <laughs> ending. I think the original ending is so much better. Oh, yeah. The original ending is mm. so much more tragic and sad for Glenn Close mm. rather than her just telling me, I'm a crazy person with a knife. Mm. Like, uh, that, the ending of Fatal Attraction always struck me as rather false. Like, just yeah, very Hollywood. A, a little too thrillery. Yeah, yeah but, like, it's the like, original ending like the is remake so of, fucked up. It's like the remake of The Vanishing, no. if you ever saw that. Uh, yeah, I did. And they gave it, like, a ha- make a happy ending. Yeah, such yeah, bullshit. Yeah. Sergio? <laughs> I'll get Sergio. Sergio, get off the counter, buddy. Any final words on uh, Moonstruck? I'm really glad I finally saw this. Again, I feel like I might have seen this when I was very young and my parents rented it. But I haven't seen it as an adult, and I think as an adult, I appreciate it way more than I would yeah, have yeah. when I originally did. I think this is a really wonderful, complicated screenplay with a lot mm. of different ideas, a lot of fascinating characters uh, that are explored in ways that are really wonderfully freed from screenwriting convention, and yet it's very satisfying and hits all of the major emotional beats that we want from a story. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, it's an it's an unromantic comedy. <laughs> there's there's romance yeah. in it, and it is funny, but mm. it is not the uh, oh had a hard day. I'm gonna mm. you know eat a bowl of uh, cereal for for dinner, and I'm just gonna <laughs> sit down and watch two weeks' notice. You know, like yeah. like I've done, and uh, <laughs> two weeks' notice is a good movie. It's mm. very formulaic, but it's well made, and uh, yeah, and I'm like that's that's what we use romantic comedies for a mm. lot of the time. They're just they're reliable. Yeah, Moonstruck is not reliable. Yeah. Moonstruck is challenging in a genre where we expect sort of a certain amount of complacency. Yeah, um, and yeah. I respect it for that. So, so it is it is uh, a romance. It is a comedy with romantic elements. I don't mm-hmm. think uh, I think calling it a romantic comedy is a, a bit of a misnomer because that that implies a certain set of tropes that this mm-hmm. film does not adhere to. Uh, I I did like this movie. I think it is sort of complex. I think yeah, because I watched it for the first time as a married man in my forties, there was a lot of yeah kind of bitterness that I was kind of keying into mm-hmm. that I don't think I would have if I had seen this when I was like maybe nineteen. And I find some uh, of that bitterness genuinely unpleasant. I'm a mm-hmm. bit of an optimist when it comes to things like love. I mean, mm. I don't think I'm naive, but I don't see, you know, marriage as inevitably segueing and sinking into mm. despair and infidelity. I don't think that has to be an inevitable fate. I yeah. don't buy that, but uh, I buy that the movie believes it. Yeah. yeah. And that's all that really matters. Um, so next week, on Critically Acclaimed, uh, we will be reviewing uh, new releases like Coffee and Kareem uh, and Invisible Life and um, uh, what, whatever, stuff as well. What, whatever else we can get I, into. I, I yeah, have a list here. I, actually, I, I must have left it in the other yeah. room. Um, but we will also be having another installment of the Critically Acclaimed Movie Club. And every week we switch streaming services. Mm. Not that we're going to do every streaming service in the world. Eventually we'll cycle back to Netflix and Amazon. But uh, next time... Uh, we decided to class up the joint. We're going to go to the Criterion channel and talk about a classic film that one or both of us haven't seen. Uh, the poll was already up because we want to be able to announce it every week. So you have a week to watch it mm-hmm. if you want to join us. Uh, and uh, the winner of the poll 
was Akira Kurosawa's kidnapping drama, High and Low, which is about a rich man who is told that his son is kidnapped, and he's going to pay the ransom, and then he finds out there's been a mistake, and the chauffeur's son has been kidnapped by accident, and now he's like, do I still have to pay for that? (laughs) (laughs) And it's kind of gross. The entire first... Half of the movie is a one-room drama about what's happening over the telephone and all the panic that goes on. And the second half is about uh, like a little bit more of a crime drama where they pursue the kidnapper. Yeah. Um, it's it's uh, really quite good. Uh, well, Kurosawa dealt with... It's a classic. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's quite good, apparently. I haven't seen it. This is a film I have seen. Yeah, I'm, when I'm, you've I'm, seen this I'm one, a I big Kurosawa fan, and yeah, the, Kurosawa dealt with people... Uh, when they were living through bouts of essentially blind panic. And yeah. this is one of his more panic-stricken films. That sounds really exciting mm-hmm. to me. So I'll get to see this for the very first time. Uh, some of you may be able to as well. It's on the Criterion channel. They do have a free trial, I believe, if you haven't tried it out yet. Uh, they have a lot of really wonderful stuff on there. I recommend pretty much everything that I've seen. It is worth the price of admission. Yeah, and they, they have new stuff added to the catalog all the time. Uh, it's a it's a legitimately really really great service, and it's stuff from like all different genres. They got Godzilla movies and horror movies mm-hmm. and romances oh, yeah, and all yeah. kind of stuff. So it's not just Bergman films and Kurosawa films, um, which would be fine. Which would also yeah. be fine. <laughs> my point is this: you get a lot of variety. Hmm. Um, so that will be for next week, and um, then after that, I don't probably do Hulu or something, but we'll talk about that uh, pretty soon. And uh, yeah, we got new movies coming out on Amazon and uh, Netflix and the VOD and. Yeah. <laughs> and other stuff as well. So thank you everybody for listening to Critically Acclaimed this week. Thank you especially to everybody who contributes to our Patreon. Uh, we couldn't do these shows without the Patreon. Without without your listenership and without your support, yeah, we, we couldn't dedicate. We, the time. we couldn't do as much as we do. We and, couldn't do uh, like ten podcasts a week, which is kind of what we're at right now. <laughs> we we love we love doing these podcasts. We love keeping yeah. uh, the, this just your ears filled with as much as we can give yeah. to you, uh, especially yeah. when at this time when everybody's trapped inside. So, yeah. so if you want more content and you're yeah. not already subscribed to our Patreon mm-hmm. at our various levels, we have tons of bonus episodes of our Star Trek podcast, our Oscars podcast, our new Firefly podcast. Podcast, our TV movies podcast, commentary tracks, the whole nine yards. We mm. don't have a podcast dedicated to the movie, the whole nine yards, but we it's probably, coming <laughs> at this rate. It wouldn't yeah. surprise me. Um, but we, yeah, we, that's all there. And there's there's hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of additional content just waiting for you if you haven't signed up yet. And if you can't afford to, fair enough. Tell a friend if they're looking for a podcast right now, or leave us a review wherever you found us. That would really help us out too. If you can follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim, I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Again, we ask you in this really high pressure time uh, to be safe, to be kind, to take care of yourselves and others. Uh, we we really, really hope that we all get through this as safely as possible. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everybody, for your time. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what? <laughs>